aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. Hello, everyone. My name is Amanda Reyes, and I'm here to very briefly walk you through this episode of the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. I'm doing that because we have a special guest and also because the show is kind of split into two different things. So let me just let you know what you're walking into here. So on this episode, we are talking about the direct-to-video movie series Shades of Love, which uh, was produced in the mid-'80s and which is something I have a great amount of love for. I have every episode in the series, or entry maybe might be the better word, The reason why we're doing this here is, yes, they are direct-to-video, which doesn't technically make them quote-unquote made for TV, but they are made for the small screen, and I think it qualifies. Um, They feel a lot like TV movies, like the best TV movies you've ever seen, by the way. So I'm really excited. I reached out to the producer of the series. His name is Ken Achety, and he was gracious enough to let me talk to him about it, and he's going to give you a lot of context about the show and share a lot of wonderful memories about it as well. So a big shout-out to Ken here because he's gone on to big and amazing things. Look at his IMDb page. And the fact that he took just a little time out to talk to me means so much. Um, And I think you'll find him really engaging. And one of the things that stood out to me about him uh, that really warmed my heart is that he loves romance too. And, And I think that's why the series is so amazing and why I'm so pleased to maybe be introducing you to it if you're not so familiar with it. So anyway, the first hour or so is um, my talk with Ken. And then the second half is Dan and I talking about two entries in the Shades of Love series. That is Echoes and Crimson and the Rose Cafe. So um, what you're going to see here is a little bit of difference in sound quality. I interviewed Ken via Zoom and that was wonderful and that we could do it face to face. There are a couple moments where I think the sound is a little questionable. Um, the way it spits out the tracks to me, I couldn't split them apart. So there's a little bit of me talking over him just a little bit and a little bit of where it sound, might sound a little bit like we're drowning. But I think it's very clear for the most part. The stuff I did with Dan on Skype is pretty good, but again, he drops in and out a little just because the recordings in Skype are always a little hinky for some reason. So anyway, just so you know, we're starting off with the interview and then we're going into talking about a couple of episodes of the series. So please stick around for all of it. I had a really great time putting this together. It took a little bit of time because my heart was really in it. So I hope you all appreciate it and I hope you all uh, seek out Shades of Love. Every episode is available on VHS. I say episode, I mean entry, but they're all available on VHS. So uh, take a look out for them and enjoy. Thank you. this idea come about? I studied comparative literature at Yale where I got my PhD and some of my favorite courses were a course on Dante's what's called the Dolce Stil Nuovo, the sweet new style from which all these love poems came and they they derived from the south of France. So I studied, I took two courses on Provençal literature which is a language 
that existed in the south of France during the time of the troubadours, in which, you know, women were worshipped, basically. The men had all gone off to war, but the poets stayed in the court of these ladies, and always a far-off lady, an untouchable lady, and they created the art, the, the literature of courtly love. So that was one of the things I taught as a professor at Occidental College for 17 years, along with love poetry of Latin and, you know, uh, Horace and Catullus in the time of Virgil and, you know, Augustus Caesar and Sappho's poetry, mm-hmm. uh, which I've always wanted to do something with. I'm toying with a, a song cycle using her lyrics. She's just amazing. And then Shakespeare's sonnets and the Elizabethan sonnets by Marlowe and Shakespeare and Webster, all these other great, and they were all, you know, love songs, love poetry. And, and so I looked at every period of time, and that's what made me realize that that, that, that movies needed its own kind of uh, poet, you know, like Shakespeare wrote tragedies and histories for a more intelligent, you know, sophisticated, educated audience. But his sonnets were for the everyday person walking around London. And uh, that's what I wanted to do with Shades of Love is just for the everyday woman who just didn't want to deal with anything intellectual, but who wanted to feel the feelings of love. At least she could do that. I mean, these novels were substitutes. You know, they were vicarious experiences. One time I spent the night with an old girlfriend from Yale in New York, and she was just scolding me at dinner about how dare I leave being a professor of, you know, comparative literature to make romance movies. Like, what, how could you do that to yourself? How could you debase yourself that way? She went on and on and on. And anyway, I went to bed at night alone uh, in her house. And she had told me in the morning where to find the coffee. And I, I started taking out the coffee from her shelf. And I, I found tucked behind the dishes a great big fat romance novel. <laughs> of course. Here we were 800 years later in, in a mass market situation, doing something straight out of the rules of Andrew the Chaplain in the court of Marie de Champagne, you know. And uh, so I started thinking about it, and I I researched romance novels, which I knew nothing about, and discovered that one out of every three books in the United States is a romance novel. And then in many countries, it was one out of every two books. Mm. Um, And then in no country was it less than one out of every, every three books. And I just was blown away by the power of that market. And I thought somebody had been advising me, if you want to come into the entertainment world, you need to do something that is unique. And I thought, what if I did low price? Because all the things the novels had in common were they were low price, they were addictive. Women who read them read as many as 12 every month. And I thought, what if I could you know, create a low price, addictive set of romances for contemporary women and uh, long story short, that's, that's how I got the idea. And I, 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 as a marketing person whose uncles were in the grocery business, and I used to work at their stores, I realized marketing was what made one store better than the other. And marketing means, you know, having, giving, giving the consumer a reason to reach out. So I came up with the idea of, of shades of love uh, and titles with different colors in them. And because uh, I imagined that the uh, the cassette, you know, in those days, that was on a wall would all be a rainbow of colors, you know, and, and uh, that idea is how I wrote up the proposal. You know, the titles were things like Echoes in Crimson, the, yep. the Rose yep. Cafe, yep. 
uh, lilac cord. Yeah, uh, I have several right here. There you go. Yeah, that, that's, that's the one for Valerina yeah. and the Blues, I noticed, yes. and uh, the Sunset Court. And so I did that, and I started going around to uh, the studios proposing it. And in those days, Carl Lorimar was a, was a major video cassette re, you know, di mm -hmm. distributor because they were doing Jane Fonda's workout, and they made a fortune oh. from that. So I, this was for, you know, the female market. Contemporary romances mean, meaning women of today working in the marketplace because women were no longer sitting at home doing nothing um, and uh, having problems finding romance because of that. So that was the, the formula. And well, the funny thing is that when I made the deal with Lorimar, which was a year later acquired by Warner Brothers, um, they agreed to finance half of it, you know, the, a series of of movies, and I'd actually asked for four movies, but that quickly turned into eight. And uh, they agreed to finance half of it if I could find the other half of the financing, which I did finally in Canada from Astro Bellevue, Pathé in Montreal. And uh, halfway through doing the first eight movies, Lorimar liked the first one so much they ordered in a second batch of eight. And halfway through the second batch of eight, they were about to order a third batch, but then they Lorimar went bankrupt and it was acquired by Warner oh. Brothers. And during that period, they actually wanted to cancel the series, but Astral and I convinced them that canceling it would cost more than finishing the, you know, the second series. So we finished the 16 movies, uh, and it took you know a year or so for Warner Brothers to acquire them, so it was no longer a viable idea at the end of that year. I've always wanted to redo them, um, especially from what I learned from them, I would I wanted to redo them. Even to this day, I'm thinking about doing that. Oh, but it's I would love that. The merchandisers, the grocery stores and drug stores that we talked to, they all love the idea of the colors. And so we, you know, fortunately, we we're able to come up with, you know, 16 colors. But <laughs> we're going to be touching it for the next day, you know. Well, the, the chartreuse one was pretty inspired, I thought. And actually, yeah. I think that was the first one that you released looking at the, I don't know how they came out, but so I'm going by Wikipedia. And I'm going to have a couple questions about where they may have aired in Canada. But uh, the thing, I'm kind of hopping around my questions here, but since we're talking about it, Make Mine Chartreuse is a really interesting one because it's about a romance writer. And it's a male romance writer. And I wondered if there was some sort of tongue-in-cheek, because a lot of them feel very straightforward, but something like Sincerely Violet has a really great sense of humor to it. I think Little White Lies has um, a real sense of adventure. We'll sort of talk about how unique these series are. But um, but uh, I find that Make Mine Chartreuse is very self-aware. So you've already kind of explained, like, you've gone back to look at how romance sort of came to be in literature, but you used a very specific model. And so if you could kind of talk about, um, in the articles that I've read, and I'd rather have you answer this question, but essentially how, like, you hired an actress that was unknown and then got a name actor, and you sort of set these things up to, to follow a certain pattern. Could you talk a little bit about the pattern that you developed? Well, we, uh, Lorimar was very consumer-driven, and uh, they believed in product, you know, testing. They called them focus groups. They believed in focus groups. So a bunch of questions that we asked were having to do with whether the, the male and the female lead had to be well known. And uh, everyone agreed, which was my idea from the beginning, that the, that the actress should not be well known because it was meant to relate to ordinary, you know, everyday women. 
And uh, if you had a famous actress playing that role, you would have a hard time relating to the male to the male lead because you would see the other woman. This was her re- relationship, not mine. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you didn't recognize, you know, the, the female lead, you could easily put yourself in her place. And it turned out that that was uh, what the focus groups believed as well. And uh, they did believe that a recognizable male name was okay, but they weren't as demanding as the theatrical audience would have been. They were happy with TV names. So we ended up getting about 12 of our 16 male leads from William Morris Agency, um, which made them happy. And it was only a two-week shoot, so they Mm -hmm. were only going to lose their client for two weeks, and they would just fly up to Canada, shoot, and come back. So the other things we asked them was how important the cover was, how important the, the title was, how important you know, the male, the female, and the story itself. And it turned out that the, the most important thing um, was the, the, the story and the male lead were the two most important mm-hmm. things. So we did our best to give them recognizable male leads who were in series, you know, that were going at the time and, and uh, worldwide. Like Simon McCorkendale was one of our best leads and he was from England and yeah, uh, yeah. Jacques Leclerc was from, mm-hmm. you know, all my Montreal, children, but he was well known. At, yeah. He was well known in France because of all my children. And uh, so that's kind of how it all evolved at the beginning. So you talked about the shooting schedule. So I was reading um, in some old newspapers that you shot two at a time over two week period. You made them in a very short period of time. Now were you on set for a lot of the filming? Yeah, I was I was hands-on producer for all 16 films. First eight were made back-to-back, yes. uh, w- which means that we shot for two weeks and then started the next movie at, while we were post-producing the first movie. Okay. Then we started. So we did, But the second batch were done two at a time, which made it really difficult because <laughs> I actually had to use a helicopter to go from one set to the other sometimes um, because they were, you know, shooting at the same time. So when you're moving that fast, uh, tell me a little bit about like um, the script writing process. So you talked about what you needed, but and you used one uh, screenwriter for the bulk of the first ones, Julian Rothman, um, who's a really interesting guy. But um, like, uh, how fast were the scripts written, and how much oversight did you have over that? Well, I had complete oversight over it because I, it was my formula they were writing it to. I gave a very detailed formula, like three pages long of of what each story had to do. And um, so I was page by page working on scripts and did a lot of the writing myself. Julian Rothman didn't write anything. Oh. Um, he, he was Canadian. Mm-hmm. And we went down to the, remember, we flew into the Tucson airport and made a deal with him to use his name because in order for this to work in Canada, it had to have a Canadian name sure. in the writing slot. Right, but the the guy who really did it was a guy named George Bloom. Ironically, uh, his name was George Bloom. He lived in Beverly Hills, and he was a dear, dear friend at the time. Uh, and you know, we became friends because of this, and we were extremely close collaborators. You know, George totally got this formula. He loved the stories, and uh, really is responsible for the best the best scripts um, that we had. 
so that's the real story. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, that's uh, a tidbit that I never saw. So, and also these were pretty low budget. Um, I read that they were about a million dollars each. Is that right? No, they. I wish they were a million dollars each. They were. <laughs> they were. They were six fifty each. Oh. Um, yeah. And uh, some of them looked really good. Some of them looked like good movies of the week. Like I think Rose Cafe looked very good. And Tangerine Taxi looked really good. Yeah, that looked good. I mean, getting that that taxi was a major coup. We, <laughs> you know, we found that old car and then we painted it tangerine. And that was a hold your breath kind of thing because we didn't know what it was going to turn out looking like. But it, it looked great. In fact, yeah. I to this day, I wish I'd bought it. I, I, I was... You know, one of my investors wanted to buy it at the end of the movie, um, but it was uh, just too difficult to get it shipped to California, which is where he lived, and he didn't want to drive it all the way down to California. Long story short, but, you know, that was exciting. And, you know, in, in general, I think that the movies look good. If I had to do them all over again, I would probably have done it with different directors. Um, to me, the weakness... The two big weaknesses of the series, I think the stories delivered what they were supposed to deliver because they got huge good response from Catherine Falk, who was the publisher of Romantic Times in those days and who was kind of the guru of the romance book industry. Mm -hmm. we, we went to their convention and we showed them shots. You know, we showed them scenes from the, the first few movies to ask them if things like whether the sex should be hotter or not and so on. Uh, or to ask them what they thought of the, the, the male leads, what they thought of the language in terms of, you know, plainness versus obscenity. I even brought Catherine up to Montreal and had her walk across, you know, the, the stage in, uh, in The Garnet Princess because she loved the, the series so much. But I, I thought the weaknesses were the leading ladies who were uneven because they were really inexperienced. You know, we had to use a Canadian lead leading lady. And not only that, but we were shooting these in Montreal, which is primarily French speaking. And we had to find English speaking leading ladies in Montreal. We brought in a few from Ontario, but not very many. So that was another limitation that made us not have the strongest women we could have. Although I thought most of them were charming anyway, and, you know, did a pretty good job. We had one real howler that was so bad that we had to completely recut it and completely rewrite it in post-production oh, no. uh, to make any sense out of it because the leading lady did not have a clue about anything. Um, and, I, and then the, I, the other weakness is I thought the directors were uneven also. Like some of them were very good, but one of them was too slow. She moved, she, everything moved too slowly. Uh, and, and one of them was, um, you know, he was kind of, too jumpy and too erratic. Uh, but in general, I, you know, I thought they were sweet little movies. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not, they were, they were never meant to be A movies. They were meant to be B movies that um, satisfied an audience uh, with the specific need, the need to have romance and an otherwise too cluttered work life, you know. Uh, in, in today's world, I realized that they were kind of of their time because in today's world, you couldn't really do movies as sappy as these were, or as maudlin as they were, or as romantic, just pure romantic. So I was thinking I would do a series, something like 
aspects of love or faces of love or mm-hmm. forms of love and, and have all, what they had in common is all of them being about falling in love and finding somebody, regardless of whether they were the same sex or, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. different sexes or whatever, you know, but, um, it, it, you know, different races and so on. Uh, romance novels, as you probably know, were divided into dozens of categories. Uh, everything from fantasy romances to sci-fi romances to uh, ethnic romances, mm-hmm. you know, Latino romances, African-American romances, and so on. But this one, we were just starting with the mainstream. Well, um, I'm going to skip ahead because you mentioned having a female director, and I, I do want to briefly talk about some of the feminist aspects of uh, Shades of Love, which I think there are many, and you've already touched on a couple of them. One being that to have them on video allowed women to fit them into their daily lives, these working women that um, had schedules that were much different than they would have been even a decade earlier, which I love. You being so um, progressively thinking towards that, that's not the right phrase, but there was some progressiveness there about you understanding where the women's place was. And also that the women in um, these movies were career women and they never lost their career as uh, they got to the love story at the end. And in so many of the Harlequin novels, as much as I love them, they sort of give up everything for the man here. There's, there's no compromise. Maybe there's a little bit like make my chartreuse is a really good example of that because you switch the gender roles there where he's the romance novelist, right? And she's the high powered businesswoman, and they can't find time for their uh, love, but then they manage to work it out in the end without really having to compromise their ambitions outside of having a relationship. And so I was, I was, I guess that's what draws me to them now in 2020. Um, But I think at the time too, women probably really appreciated that. And we can talk about the reception here in a second, but just briefly, you did employ some women to write the scripts. I think there was one that had a female writer, um, Little White Lies, right? was directed by Susan Martin and written by Marilyn Lightstone. And also you worked with a woman named Carol Wickman that I'm kind of curious about. Um, and she did Echoes in Crimson with Greg Evigan. I'm mentioning that for my podcast co-host because he loves Greg Evigan. And, um, and at the time, even in the 80s, there weren't a lot of women working behind the scenes uh, in television and film. And so... I don't know if I have so much a question, but if you could just sort of talk about the process. I don't even know that you thought of gender when you were um, and hiring for these people, but if you could talk a little bit about working with the women, particularly Carol Wickman, because she died very young. Um, this is the only thing I think she made as a director. And so if you could just give us a little bit of information about her as well, I would love to hear about well, her. Well, Carol, Carol was, you know, one of my dearest people to work with. Uh, she, she was an executive at Astral and, and Astral acquired this series. You know, they, they, uh, financed it, co-financed it, primarily because she behind the scenes was lobbying for it. And uh, what I didn't realize is that she wanted to direct and wanted to be heavily involved in it. And so she was our executive from Astral for the first eight movies. And uh, I think the one she did, Echoes in Crimson, was part of the first eight, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. It looks and, like it was, uh, yeah. But the sad part about it is that, that Carol was had terminal cancer at the time and it was determined to do this movie anyway. And she passed away after the first date and before she could help with the second date. Um, but this was her last kind of swan song. 
And I've always had a soft spot in my heart for it because of that. Greg Evigan was just a sweetheart to work oh, with. And, uh, you know, his, uh, his leading lady who, you know, was not the most experienced person, Patty Talbot, she, but she was a dear person too. And the sweetness of that movie, I think, really comes across. Uh, and Carol really helped me try to locate female directors. It was very difficult. I mean, we found Daniel Suiza, who did two of them. Oh, that's uh, right. I wasn't of, sure if that was a female or a male with the Yeah, no, Danielle Frenchie. was a female. And because of, because of that, we gave her two movies, uh, even though I swore after the, the first movie that I would never use her again because she was so, how can I say it? She was so hard-ass about everything <laughs> um, and, and convinced that she was right and, and meticulous. I mean, the good thing about it is she really planned out every scene. The bad thing about it is that she had these two huge notebooks that were literally drawing out every scene in inches. Uh, and she stuck to those no matter what. So she was very slow in, in everything that she did uh, and very traditional and old fashioned. So her movies to me feel like the most old fashioned. She did The Garnet Princess, which is also uh, one of my favorites because of the, the fantasy of it, the fairy tale story. And the Garnet Princess had one of my favorite actresses in it, Lillian Clune, who was a protege of Danielle and who um, Danielle treated quite badly during, mm. during the shoot. Uh, so, so tough on her. And, uh, but nonetheless, that I learned a lot about directing by watching her. And that then we had um, Susan Martin was another female that we had. I think we had one more than that too, but, Susan did a great job um, just working away. No, nothing to complain about with her. So, yeah, we, we really tried to find females to get involved in. Although the scripts were not female, because we couldn't find a really good female writer in Canada, all the stories were by females, because the stories were from female romance writers, you know, novelists. And, uh, in fact, when I made the deal with Lorimar, they, they told me on a Thursday that they wanted to acquire the deal and distribute it. And uh, they wanted to read the scripts uh, before they signed the paperwork with me. And I said, look, um, I'm not letting anybody read these scripts uh, and uh, until there is paperwork signed. So I gave them until Monday to come up with paperwork. They agreed to my terms for some reason. But the real reason for my terms is they didn't have any scripts uh, yet. And I, I had, um, two treatments that they could see. So on Friday, the day after they said they wanted to do it, I put you know, a fax to everybody I knew in the romance novel business, thanks to Catherine, that was quite a few people, like 40 people. And I told them, here's what I'm looking for by Monday. I'm looking for a, a treatment of 10 you know, to 20 pages with the following elements in it. Contemporary woman tied up in a in a career, you know, uh, not some, some big conflict going on in her career, no time for romance, runs into the perfect guy in the middle of all of this, has to choose between her work and the guy, and somehow they manage to end up happily together at the end, uh, no matter what they have to go through. So in Champagne for Two, um, for example, she was 
working at an ad agency and he was a sh- teaching uh, cooking on television. He was a chef and uh, Nicholas Campbell. And uh, they got together. They fell in love. It was very cute. And then they had to break up because uh, he was assigned. He got a deal, you know, at a television station in Seattle and had to leave and go work in Seattle. And then she ends up coming to Seattle at the end of the story through the magic of romance, you know. And uh, so by Monday, I had 30 script, 30 treatments. And uh, the treatments were, you know, all 16 of the first movies were from the, from the treatments that came in on Monday. And, and then I could let Lorimar uh, read them. And they loved, you know, Champagne for Two was a two-page treatment, if you can believe that. And, uh, you know, the, Ro- the Rose Cafe, which I named after my favorite restaurant in Venice, my coffee, where I w- had breakfast with my best friend a lot, the Rose Cafe in, on Rose Avenue in Venice. That was like 14 pages. Uh, but they were all from romance novelists. And we even were proposing at the beginning to do a, a set of novels. Yes, right. You know, called, called Shades of Love. And we had pictures of the novels in some of the movies, in fact, because we mocked them up. But then we went to New York and started looking for publishers. And to make a long story short, Astral, who by then was the majority owner, decided not to do the novels because the cost of doing the novels was just prohibitive and made the potential profit very, very low. Whereas with the movies, it was a better financial deal, you know, altogether. Part of the background, too, and how we use some women directors. We, we, if we'd had more, we would have used them. It's still difficult in Canada. I was just talking to a female director the other day from Ontario, and she's like a rare bird. I mean, very few Canadian women direct. Uh, there are more now than there were back then, but still nowhere near the right proportion, you know, no, nowhere near 50-50. Yeah, I was really pleased uh, going through the credits, seeing all the women that were involved. And um, since I do like the history of television, there's just, in, even in the States here, um, more so in the 70s, I think, you know, in the 80s too, it was really difficult and names would start to stand out to you because they used the, they would use the same women a lot, like Rita Lakin might be a name you recognize, or Gloria Monti was a director before she produced General Hospital. But um, you didn't see them very often, and the stuff that they were doing, particularly Rita Lakin later after Dark Shadows and um, Gloria Monti uh, were really late at night, shot on video stuff, so they weren't given a lot of budget and stuff. And But they were given a lot of good work, and they made a lot of good product out of it. Um, you mentioned the books, which I was going to ask you about, so I'm just going to go ahead and skip around again. But um, I know, too, that there was um, talk in some, I think, at the end of the videos, the promotions for a soundtrack. Did that ever come to be, the soundtrack? Yeah, it did. Columbia Records published it. I have a picture. I have, a, I have it mounted on the wall of my office here. Uh, the Shades of Love soundtrack, and uh, it was a it was on a, rec- on a record. If you remember what those were, yes, of course. <laughs> it was a three, thirty-three and a third record, and uh, it had all the song. One of the be- best things about the series was the music, in my opinion, and, yes. and choo- getting to choose these songs was one of my favorite things. I actually, wrote three songs of my own yeah. that, are, that are in the series. And, um, uh, oh, just real quick, oh, no. always saying goodbye. I have on my iPod that song. <laughs> is amazing 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 and i listen to it all the time and so when i saw that you had written the lyrics to it i don't know if you did the music per se or rick smith wrote the music or but whatever yeah. you created a, an incredible song and i was going to ask you about 
the soundtrack, not to cut you off, but um, was it hard, like rights wise, you use some really big hit songs. Was that difficult to get the rights to some of those? Like Tonight I Celebrate My Love For You with by Peebo Bryson and Roberta Flack. That was a huge hit. You had Freddie Jackson, uh, Kenny Rogers, right? And Sheena Easton were on there. Um, was it hard to get the rights to those? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but we had a great, you know, uh, music director and he, he got the, uh, the big companies to fall in love with the series as happened with Lorimar. I mean, Lorimar just fell in love with the series. And, and so did our first international distributor, Manson International. And uh, that's what happened with the, with these companies. They, they fell in love with the series and they gave us deals that we, we could accept. I mean, most of the songs cost us between I'd say 15 or $20,000, which is a lot, but, but having one, even one great song in a movie makes a huge difference, especially because we we chopped it up and used it all over the movie, you know, in little snippets. And the way that the way the the, the rights rules work back then is that as long as you didn't use more than say thirty eight seconds in a row, it was much cheaper than you know it was affordable. Uh, so we always we just chopped it up and used thirty seconds here, thirty seconds there. To me, that was one of the big selling points of the series. Yeah, it was great. So tell me, had you written music before you did the show? Well, I did uh, years ago. I wrote the the libretto for a sung symphony at the New York Philharmonic. Wow! That was performed at Lincoln Center. Wow! And, uh, working with the composer. You know, and I, I just wrote the words. In this case, I actually sat down with Lewis and worked on the music to go with the lyrics. And that was really fun. But no, I, you know, it was like an alternate career I would have loved to be in is writing songs because I just love songs. Somebody asked me what my favorite songs were. And I, I said, well, I have 6,000 of them on my, <laughs> on my Spotify favorites list. <laughs> <laughs> which we we just got back from a trip to the northern california we listened to all of my favorites on the way up and the way down well you're very good at it i love always saying goodbye i can't even say that enough and that kind of brings me to uh i don't know if i'm going to say it right but is it tamara or tamara chaplin that was charlie chaplin's granddaughter and she's in the ballerina in the blues with rex smith who i love and i think is a great romantic lead in everything i've seen him in um i really love ballerina in the blues not my favorite one um my favorite one would probably be tangerine taxi but it's up there because i think it's really charming and i had a couple questions about her because she only had two film credits which was ballerina in the blues and lipstick which was kind of a notorious sort of exploitation movie with uh margo and i think mariel hemingway both are in that and um i was just curious what it was like to work with her and also was she a real life dancer because she's got the build and she's got the grace of a dancer and so it always seemed to me that that's how she came to the part but I don't know if you have a story about how you got her for that well our dilemma with her was um, do we use a body double or not in other words do we find a an actress and, and use a body double for the for the ballet you know for the dancing or do we cast a ballerina uh, and hope she can act and, and we chose to do the, the latter. We, we cast her. She was a ballerina at the time. She was a real challenge as an actress. I mean, I'm so glad to hear you say you like the movie because to me, that was the weakest of the movies. If her acting was acceptable, it's because we succeeded in getting it out of her, you know, getting that role out of her and also recutting the movie over and over again until we thought it kind of worked. But yeah, I'm surprised 
you know, Rex really helped having him, in it, you know, was really helpful. And, and, oh, and I actually think that our theory of using unknown actresses so that the woman could put herself in that place really helped us in that movie um, because you didn't notice her flaws as much as we did, you know, for example. Uh, but yeah, and she tried very hard. She was very sweet to work with. It's just that she didn't have a long, she didn't have a wide emotional range uh, to work with. She uh, just had a, a grace about her. And I think of all the movies, maybe it's, um, and I don't, I don't mean this as a detriment, but I think it's the simplest in terms of story. But it's just, like I said, I can't think of another word except charming. It's lovely. And I kind of get caught up. I think she's such a good dancer that maybe if she has act flaws as an actor, she makes up for it just by being so lovely to look at and watch. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I love, you know, I do think that song really worked you know, for that movie, that always saying goodbye. That's the best. That was, yeah, I think that helped the movie a lot. Um, you know, Louis Fury, who directed the Champagne for Two, yes, was the composer who did who did the themes music. And when I listen to them today, the, the theme music really sounds antiquated to me. Oh, Although I, I love I, it, though. Yeah, good. I mean, it was meant to be very romantic and without apology. Yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of women, you know, really love that. I mean, when we went to the conventions twice to ask them about the the level of sex, uh, for example, we asked them a lot of questions, but that one was the one we were most concerned about because our distributor wanted us to make them extremely sexy. You know, uh, Michael Solomon, I'll never forget, who was the head of Warner International, told me, actually, more fucking, you know, excuse me. <laughs> That's okay. More, you know. I need more of that. I need more flesh. You know, I'm, I'm selling these in translation around the world, blah, blah, blah. It was like, wow, he didn't, I don't think he really got our attempt at subtlety, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but the American distributor, you know, that, that was fine. And, and at the convention, it turned out the women there voted equally for sexier ones. So, so for example, Tangerine Taxi was one of the most explicit ones. The, there's male um, nudity in that. And that surprised me when I yeah. saw it because I'd seen most of them. Up. Tangerine Taxi was the one, just briefly, I looked for the most because it starred Marshall Colt. And he was on a very short-lived series in the 80s that I love. And he hadn't done much. And, um, and also, I can't remember the actor who plays his rival um, Steve Marshall, I think is the actor's name, um, plays the friend of the girl that's the, you know, falling in love with Marshall Colt. And he was from a movie called Night of the Creeps that I love and was my ultimate crush in the 80s. And so to put those two in a movie together, and that was a really hard film to find um, for a long time. Um, and now I'm losing where you were going. I'm sorry. I just, I love that movie. And, but I was, I was surprised that I saw as much as Marshall Colt as I saw because I was not expecting that from the yeah. other ones I'd already seen. Yeah, and then there was another one called Indigo Autumn. I don't know if you ever watched that one. Mark but. Singer, yeah, I have. I've seen almost all of them. There's only two I haven't seen. Um, Moonlight Flight and uh, Midnight Magic are the two I haven't seen. Oh, okay. Yet. Yeah, Moonlight Flight is one of the other songs I wrote. Oh, great. And, uh, you, you would like that one. That was one of the, I think, one of the better ones. And Midnight Magic was also very charming. It had uh, James Wilder in it, I think. Yes, I worked with James Wilder on a film. Oh, yeah? He was really kind of hot in those days. And yeah, he was. 
he was a he was a my interpretation of him because I never really spoke to him. I was a production assistant, but he um he seemed very serious uh, about yeah. what he was doing. And I remember he wanted to shoot a scene a certain way, and the director he was pretty new. Um, kind of let him have free reign and he did this scene and I remember the entire cast and crew applauded afterwards. So he, he knew what he was doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, he was a great guy. We were friends afterwards for a while. And, um, and then the woman in it was one of the only relatively famous actresses in the whole series. And I can't remember her name right now. Um, Midnight Magic, but she, she did a great job. She was a broadcaster, a radio broadcaster. And it was, a, you know, about a, a woman doing a, uh, and a kind of psychology advice show uh, and who, but who herself had nothing going on in her life. And I think he was the engineer at the station or something and they fell in love during the show and it was really, really touching. And she was one of the older, we tried to experiment with older versus younger, you know, matching up older men, younger women, vice versa. That I think was good. We, we did try to experiment with all these issues you're raising. I mean, the feminist issue, the role reversal issue was in many different movies. Like in the Rose Cafe, uh, Linda Smith is trying to open a restaurant. Uh, and and uh, what's his name? Parker Stevenson. Parker Stevenson. He's my, my favorite of the actors that you had cast. Yeah, he, he yeah. was a very good friend. In fact, I have some Aww. funny stories. You know, he was, he was with Kirstie Alley in those days. Mm-hmm. So we, we became very good friends. And my brother had a Bustamante camel that he had bought you know, from Bustamante himself, like a brass camel, kind of life-size, but seated camel. And they came to a party at my brother's house and he brought his father, you know, he told me he was going to bring his father, who's had Alzheimer's. And his his father just fell in love with the camel and sat on it. And, you know, for years afterward, my brother said, this is the the Stevenson dent on this camel and it's all (laughs) your fault. And, you know... (laughs) You know, you, we couldn't take it out. But yeah, that that would is a retired man, you know, and a woman who's the opposite of retired trying to start a restaurant. And uh, then we had Greg Gavigan played a childhood sweetheart of this woman whose heart he broke and she left town because of it. And then he shows up in town years later and turns out that he never, he never sent her the letter that he wrote that explained why they broke up. Um, yeah, I just, I love those stories. I mean, I always loved love stories and romantic comedies were always my favorite, you know, thing. And uh, after that, I, I produced, you know, Life or Something Like It and Joe Somebody. And we, we, we sold a lot of romantic comedies. I've got one now that I'm incredibly in love with called uh, Kelly T and Me about a, a waitress who's nine months pregnant and gets in a car to go across country with this loser guy who's taking his mother's ashes to the Pacific coast so he can spread them and then drown himself. Mm. And uh, it is one of the funniest and sweetest stories you ever read. I'm hoping to get Emma Stone to play this pregnant waitress, you know, but anyway, still in love with romances and with the whole thing of love. You know, I taught, used to teach Boccaccio and the Decameron, which were stories about love. Part of my, uh, kind of literary background too. Yeah, I think I think it really translates for me um, that there's such a, because they are very sort of innocent and sweet and at their core, um, it's the essence of, I think, where romance is. We add all these different ingredients to it, but you definitely like kind of 
um, it's almost like a minimalist art, you know, like you just sort of shave it down to this core of what it is and then present it to us. And for me, they've been really enduring. I watched them over and over again, some more than others, um, particularly the Rose Cafe that you mentioned is one that I've seen several times. Um, it's one that I just adore. Um, that was a special one for me, not just because Parker Stevenson was in it, but I picked it up at a time where I was having a lot of personal problems. My parents had passed away and um, there was very little that anybody could do to kind of cheer me up. And so the Rose Cafe would come on, you know, and I would just take me into this other world where I knew everything was going to end up okay, you know, and so they're, they're special that way. And so I'm curious, when they originally came out, was there a lot of reviews? And what was the reception like from, say, the Romantic Times? You talked about the editor, but like, did you get reviews? And the fan base, did you hear from people about your movies? Yeah, we did. The, the Romantic Times loved them, of course. That, that's not surprising. And they promoted them a lot for us. Uh, the New York Times, believe it or not, did a, a six-page spread on it. Said, you know, romance professor creates uh, romance movies. I'll never forget my, my mentor at Yale was Bart Giamatti. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he, mm-hmm. he went on from being the professor of Renaissance to uh, the president of Yale to uh, the baseball commissioner. Wow. And, uh, and I ran into him at the, in the Yale Club in New York one day, and he said, actually, what does this say here about comparative literature professor becoming a romance producer? And I said, what does this I hear about the president of Yale becoming the baseball <laughs> commissioner? <laughs> and uh, so the New York Times really, you know, gave them a lot of attention, most, mostly about the phenomenon uh, uh, and, and the, what it was saying about contemporary women. Individuals wrote in and loved them, had their favorites. We gave, you know, contests every year, which was your favorite and so on. Then we would bring the star to a, con- to a conference once we voted, you know, the favorite one. The general trade only cared about the numbers. You know, they only cared about how well they did. And because Lorimar went bankrupt, uh, they were never distributed the way I wanted them to be distributed. They were supposed to be distributed through grocery stores and drug stores, which is where romance novels were bought in those days. Uh, and instead they distributed them through video rental stores where they had to compete with all the A-list titles. Nonetheless, they still did well enough to, I think they were in 38 countries where they still play to this day sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they played on Cinemax and did pretty well. But, you know, they didn't knock them dead. Uh, they didn't become the phenomenon I thought they would be because I thought if they would distribute them the way I wanted them to be distributed, I think they would have caught on the way the novels did. Because one of our slogans was, to, to bring you something you could watch on your own time. On your own time was the slogan we used for the consumers because you could take a cassette home and watch it whenever you wanted to watch it. You didn't have to tune in to a certain time and we didn't have downstreaming in those days. You know what I mean? So yeah. this was just like you could do the Jane Fonda workout on your own time. You could watch these on your own time. And, uh, As I said, I I still think there's an audience for them, especially with so many different channels available. You could find a channel that would want to do a series like this. And people now watch things addictively anyway. You know, like I I just finished a series that I just watched three years in a row, you know, in in three weeks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We we got hooked on it and just watched the whole thing. But um, I'm glad to hear you say you've watched them and 
Where, where did you Where did you find them? Where did you, you get know, them? Do you know what? Originally, um, right after my parents passed away, uh, we went to go clean out their house. And my parents were in Vegas, and I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And um, we were taking the moving truck uh, back to L.A. And we stopped in Barstow, I think. And they had it was at the time when VHS was getting phased out and DVDs were coming in. And so all the video stores were selling just all their videos. They were just liquidating. And so I was really picking up whatever I could because so much stuff um, hadn't been released on DVD at that point. And there was sitting, interestingly enough, there was a series called Romance Theater. I don't know if you're too familiar with it. It was like a novella series and they released a bunch of those on video. There was an episode of that um, that they had compiled uh, and put on video and also Champagne for Two. And so I picked them up and not really knowing what either, I remembered Romance Theater as a kid, but um, I didn't know anything about Shades of Love. And so I put it on, I don't know, a couple of weeks after I bought it. And I was just really charmed by it. I loved it. I thought it was so good. I love Nicholas Campbell. I love Nicholas Campbell. And it was yeah, great to see him good. in that. Yeah, he's wonderful. And um, I never really seen him as a romantic lead, which I thought was really interesting. He's um, very handsome, but he was the hitchhiker at the beginning of that series. And then he was on a show called The Insiders with Stoney Jackson. And so he was like an action guy. And so I saw it was called Shades of Love, colon, you know, Champagne for Two. And so I thought, oh, what is this? And so I did a little research and I saw that there was a series of them. So I started looking for the VHS, which can run. I don't know if you've ever looked for them online, but like Tangerine Taxi was selling for over $100 on eBay for a number of years. And um, so that became the golden chalice for me, right, to find that one. But um, so I started slowly acquiring them um, off Amazon and um, eBay where I could find them at an affordable price. And I've been able to get 14 of them so far. And so um, I think I actually have... I think I'm missing uh, Midnight Magic. I'm lying. I think I might have the Moonlight Moonlight Flight and Midnight Magic. The thing is, I've really spaced a lot of these out. I didn't watch Echoes in Crimson and The Garnet Princess for a while after I had it because I didn't want to see them all because then there's nothing left to do. Oh so every, Yeah, so every so often I'll pick up one. Like um, I think last year I finally saw Sunset Court. You know, I just, I just was like, let's watch this one. But a lot of times I'll return to them. Like I rewatched the ballerina and the blues for this. And I rewatched make mine chartreuse. Um, and I know Rose cafe by heart. I didn't rewatch lilac dream, but that's another one. That's straight up Harlequin. Like I just love, he washes up on the shore with amnesia. Dak Rambo is the star. Um, that one I've seen several times as well. Um, but so anyway, it was, so it was a matter of just slowly acquiring them until I, I finally the had them. I played the bartender in chartreuse. Oh, um, do you? Yeah, with I had a speaking role when I, you know, talked to the Joseph Bottom was trying to drink away his troubles because she, you know, left him yeah. high and dry, and uh, so yeah, I, that was fun. I got to play a priest in uh, the Emerald Tear. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, that's. So, what did you think of Sunset Court? I really like Sunset Court because I have a, a huge crush on Ted Wass. And so, as a matter of fact, most of the men that you've, you've been really good about, and I should ask you about how you came to acquire, you say you got them all from the same agency, but you were really good at who you hired for the roles that they played because Greg Evigan is a perfect sort of working class sort of hero type, and he's perfect right. in Echoes and Crimson. Parker Stevenson is the dreamboat, so he's perfect to just show up, you know, in the Rose Cafe the way he does and sort of come into this woman's life. I think Ted Wass was really good um, in that one. That one had a really funny sort of montage moment where he's like playing tennis kind of goofily for like three minutes or whatever uh, right. and it was it was really fun so when you were casting these were they just sending you men they thought were appropriate or did you have certain actors in mind well we had them in, you know we needed 16 guys so we we, we had a, a lot of lists and there weren't you know that many guys available maybe there were 30 available 
and, and we needed 16 of them. So we, it was a combination of those two things. You know, once, once we got into William Morris and we hired Deck Rambo from there and uh, I think Parker Stevenson, they started throwing everybody at us. <laughs> Joseph Bottom, I think, was from there. And uh, we weren't sure about him but, or Ted Wass either, but I think we got lucky with both of them. They were different. And then Chris Casanova was one of the ones I really loved. Did you see that one, The Man Who Guards the Greenhouse? I did. I just re- I just watched that one for the first time about two weeks ago to prepare for this. That yeah. was an interesting one. I really like the woman in that one because she's kind of klutzy, but but yeah. very but she's very independent, you know. And yeah. I thought one of the things that I loved about that was that there was all this construction going on around her house. And I always think of, especially in the eighties, construction workers and the cat calling, and that she really asserts herself in that. Yeah. And um, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, that w- I wasn't familiar. He's one of the few actors that you've cast that I wasn't super familiar with. Yeah, she was a, another one that was challenging because she wasn't. She didn't act like an actress. She she was just being herself. But we realized that if we sort of rewrote the script and let her be herself, it, it, it would work better. And I think that came out okay. You know, yeah, I, oh, yeah, she's great. I, I like the montage at the end where he goes on a safari and I think she shows up She shows up and meets him there or something. Yes, or she does. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, she's crying and he sends her like a little, because she's a photographer and he sends her these slides. And then right. slides, he says he's sorry. And then I think they come with two tickets or a plane ticket probably. Oh, and then, right, right. And then yeah. she runs out into the field and they're together and it's very happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, were, they, were, uh, they were not trying to be sophisticated. They were trying to just, you know, and it's funny because my mother is the real cause of all that. She, she always was trying to get me to do romantic movies. And we did one movie that, totally because of her called The Lost Valentine. Did you ever see that one with... Um, no, I haven't. Eddie White. Uh, oh, no, and, I saw that on the list of films that you had made, yeah. Yeah, and that's because of my mother. I, I I got this self-published book, and I was in the middle of some other big movie, and I told I sent it to her, and I told her, Mom, I, have not, I don't have time to read this, but you might enjoy it. So she called me three days later, and she said, you must do this movie. You must do it. And I said, why? And she goes, you know, I can't tell you the whole story because, you know, I'm losing my memory, but <laughs> it is the sweetest story you've ever read. You would love it. You got to re- you got to do this movie. So we, we, we rewrote the movie book and published, got it published at auction in New York. And then we did it as a, finally did it as an HBO Hallmark Hall of Fame movie, not, not HBO Hallmark Hall of Fame, you know, romance. What was I saying? I lost my train of thought. Oh my gosh. Well, we were talking about um, the man who guards the greenhouse. Yeah, my my mom loved this series too, and she did come up to Montreal. And my father, there, did you remember um, Champagne for Two? There was a the leading lady and her girlfriend stopped in front of the stock exchange to get some bagels at a bagel stand. Okay. Do you remember that scene? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a tiny scene, and and they he asked her what what kind of bagels do they want, onion or garlic, and that's my father. Oh, uh, that's great. Yeah, Louis Fury directed that, and my father was, uh, the night before we were in my apartment in Montreal, and I was, my mom was sleeping, and he was, he, he told me, I was on the phone 11 o'clock at night, you know, sorting out something, and he said, I, I need to read the script. I go, what script? He goes, the movie I'm going to be in tomorrow, I, I should read the script. <laughs> and I said, Dad, you know, you're just an extra in the movie, you don't need to read the script. I don't have a copy of it here anyway, and he said, just doesn't seem right. I, 
I should really read the script. It's like I had a production assistant drive over in this blizzard to deliver the script. And he sat there for an hour and a half and read it. And I, while I was still on the phone at 1.30, he says to me, you know, I really, I think I, I should have a line, at least a few lines, you know? <laughs> I said, Dad, I had to get it after a waiver for you to even be in this because <laughs> you're an American and you, you know, you're not a professional and it's a pain in the neck. And, you know, we managed to do that. Like, please don't give me grief. That would just be impossible. Okay. So the next day we're, we're there and Lewis asked me to walk across the street with my mother so she could be in the movie. And he knew that my father was going to be in the bagel thing, but he didn't say anything about it. And I was walking across the street while he was doing his scene. I didn't even get to see it shot. And then three weeks later, he called me and said, do you want to come over and see us cutting your father's scene? And I said, yeah, sure. I'll bring some bagels and sit there with you. <laughs> so we went over there, and suddenly my father is talking. I go, Louis, where did he get these lines? And he goes, well, I thought your father should have some lines. You know, he just didn't feel right. I go, he talked you into this. And he goes, no, not at all. <laughs> it was funny. I mean, one of the fun things about it is that there was huge camaraderie among the crew. We used the same crew for all the movies. Um, you know, we had to split crews when we did two at a time, but they would go to work on Friday having finished the previous movie and come on Monday and start the next movie. So it was easy to get really talented crew for inexpensively because they were shooting at home for, you know, 14 weeks in a row, whatever it took us to shoot the movies. That was part of the fun of it. The crew was uh, really good. Um, just a couple final questions. When when you're shooting like that, just give me an idea of how long a shooting day would be. If you're making a movie in two weeks, what's your typical day look like? It was like a 12-hour day and some days longer. So we had some overtime, and but nothing nothing so serious. I mean, and we had a very strict rule that for everything we spent, we had to unspend something else. So, for example... Mm -hmm. In one movie, Moonlight Flight, we had we hired a plane because what's a you know a movie about a pilot without a plane? And we had enough money in the budget for the plane to land at the lake, at a lake cottage, which is a very romantic, beautiful scene. But I got a call from my assistant one day on the set. She goes, "We got a problem here." I go, "What's going on?" She said, "Jimmy is landing the plane a second time." And I said, well, we don't have the budget for that. She says, it's too late. You know, the plane is coming in for another landing. I go, that's $5,000. You know, we can't do that. And uh, long story short, we I got a call from the completion bonding company shortly after. And they, they knew about it. And they said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, we're going to cut scene 22. And no, we're going to cut to compensate. We have to cut to scene 22. They said, <laughs> okay, fine. But that's the way the whole thing was. We had to, every penny that we spent that wasn't in the budget, we had to unspend somewhere else. Yeah, I imagine that gets a little tricky when you're on such a short shooting schedule, too, to figure out, like, what to take out. One of the things I read since you were on hand um, for a lot of it was that the uh, one of the actors, and I don't remember which one it was, but she said one of the things she liked about working in um, the Shades of Love movie was that there was a little room for movement in terms of dialogue and stuff. Did you notice a lot of, like, if actors were, were more comfortable changing the lines around, did, did they allow for that freedom? 
Well, we did to a certain extent, but honestly, I've been making movies ever since that, you know, just finished my 30th movie or something. But that actually happened more on other movies than it did on The Shades of Love. Because we were on such a tight schedule, we didn't do that normally. But we also had no rule against it. Uh, and and I, ever since then, I learned as a producer that there's one person who is kind of the ultimate and final critic of a, of a line. And that is the actor who's saying the line, because nobody else except that actor, uh, especially supporting actors, no one else is reading only their lines, mm -hmm. right? When everybody else reads the script, the director, the producers, the art department, everybody else, they're reading the thing with the whole in mind, you know, thinking of the whole. But when I'm playing, you know, a, a judge in a 25-minute court scene, I'm the only one who reads that judge's lines. And if an actor like that comes up to me and says, you know, I really hate to say this, but I don't think my, my, my character would say that line the way you got it here. I go, why? I go, well, because, you know, I think he was, he was an ex-alcoholic and uh, I don't think he could say that line the way you have it here. I go, what do you think he should say? And they, so whenever that happened, we're happy to change the line, but um, changing the line gets complicated because, you know, it throws, it can throw other people off. It can right. screw up a lot of things. So you, you don't do it, but we, we didn't have any harsh rules. And if somebody, if we like somebody and they were doing a good job, you know, we, we listened to what they had to say. So that was like Greg Gavigan. I remember he, he did change a lot of lines if they were good and the scene could still cut together that was fine, you know? So um, just finally, uh, I guess one more question, and then I'm going to sort of read a quote that you gave to a newspaper that I really like, and you can make a statement on it or not. So what's your favorite movie in the series? You know, it's probably Sh Champagne for Two, and, and maybe no number two was Echoes in Crimson. But I mean, I, I have so many favorites in every category, but uh, I think those two. And as far as the concept goes, The Garnet Princess is one of my favorites because I am really deeply old-fashioned and I yeah, love yeah. the fantasy of she's working as a seamstress and actually as a princess, you know? I just yeah, love yeah. that concept. It, that was a very sweet one, I remember. That makes me think of one of the things I like so much about um, Tangerine Taxi. I think you can see which my favorites are, but... Um, is that one? It was one of my favorites for sure. It's the one I looked the hardest for. And I was, when I got it, I was so happy um, how much I loved it. The, the actors are so good. But one of my favorite moments in it is when um, Marshall Colt takes the love interest, the girl in the film, camping, right? Because he's like this, he drives this taxi and he's just this kind of, you think he's just a taxi driver. And then when they wake up, she says, oh my God, we're on someone's property. Look at that house. And there's this gigantic house right, da right down the hill there. And he's like, oh yeah, that's my house. And he turns out he's a millionaire. And it's like everything that like I read romance novels for, for all the glamour and stuff, it just somehow fell into the story. And I right. love the way that just kind of happens, you know? Yeah, great. Like, great. You know, the, the funny thing about that scene is that the entire scene was shot in studio uh, because it was winter time when we were mm. shooting. And uh, we had a massive warehouse for our studio. And, and I said, how are we going to do this picnic? It just is going to really be really tough because we did lie like dreams in the winter time. And the actors, it was so cold, the actors had to put ice in their mouths. Have you ever heard of that? No. Because if they didn't put ice in their mouths before they said their dialogue, all the smoke would come out of their oh. mouth, but the, the ice, you know, killed the smoke. 
so they could say their lines, you know, after spitting out the ice. <laughs> and I go, I don't want to go through that again. It's a romantic scene. How are we going to fake that, you know? They said, no problem. We'll build the camp and the campfire and everything inside the place. And, of course, we're just cheating when we pull back and show the house because uh, I think it's the springtime or something. Yeah. And when, in fact, it was the dead of winter, you know. Yeah, you did a good job because I think it's the campings at night, so you've actually blocked out everything around it because they're just being lit by the fire. So it was really right. well done because I would never have known that had you not said Yeah, it. the lighting, uh, you know, the we had two really good DPs. One was English and one was French. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges is we were shooting in Montreal where French is the language. The crew all spoke French. And uh, that was part of our issues with them is they had French labor rules, which are different mm. than the ones we were used to. And, uh, and they all smoked like crazy because they were <laughs> French. You know, but anyway, yeah, that there were a lot of good times. I most exciting thing I've ever done is to do 16 movies in a row. Yeah. Um, I almost had it going once, you know, after that, uh, where a similar concept, but it didn't quite work out. And I think now in today's world, especially with this lockdown situation, which may become a, a thing of the future, that it would people would probably watch these. And plus the serial watching that we all do now, we all do the, yeah. you know, binge watching. Well, the escapism is there. And that's what I think is so great about them. Um, I do think that there's a couple of episodes that feel or a couple of movies that feel more self-aware than others. Like again, make my chartreuse. Uh, there's something about sincerely violet. I think that's very tongue in cheek to me that I really like, but in general, you guys go from point A to point B in a really genuine manner. And I think it's the, I think it's because it is genuine and because it is obviously you're romantic at heart. And so therefore that heart is seen in the, in the films and it makes more sense to me why they're so good and why they've lasted for so many years, you know, in terms of the rewatchability for me and I'm sure for other people who were um, savvy enough to buy the VHS when they first came out. And so, well, thank you. Yeah. No, I, I, I was thrilled to run into you because this is the longest conversation I've ever had about shades of love <laughs> with well, a member of the public because, uh, you know, usually things are much briefer and it's, it's nice to reminisce about it. I, I could talk endlessly about, the people I met and the situations that occurred. And, you know, there one scene, I think it was Indigo Autumn, where the, the head of the studios, Astral, called me as soon as he saw the dailies for that day. And he goes, I want to ask you a question. I go, what? And he said, where was his Willie during that scene? <laughs> I do remember I, the scene you're talking about. I, I yeah. said, Stephen, what are you talking about? And he goes, I want to know where it was because there's no other place it could be from what I saw, you know, except there. And I, I really couldn't answer his question. <laughs> the sets were, were, you know, we, we made sure the sets were private and we didn't, I, I didn't go to the, those scenes just to, out of respect, but uh, there were a lot of funny moments. And we, we had, in the second eight movies, because of it, Warner Brothers' insistence, we shot every love scene hotter. We we, sh we shot the the romantic version of the scene, and then we shot the you know the, the over the top version of the scene <laughs> because some countries wouldn't buy them without you know a frank love scene. You know, yeah, not everybody's afflicted with our pure North American puritanism. You know, 
Sure. Yeah. I might fall into the Puritanism. Not always, but I think, I mean, I don't know which version I'm watching, obviously, but like in terms of those scenes, I mean, I guess they sort of shocked me to see them in there because um, the movie's going along and it feels very much like a made for TV movie. And then there's breasts and you're like, oh, hey, that happened. Yeah. So if you've actually seen the whole breast, then that is a hotter version. Okay. Yeah, I no, guess that's what seen, the VHS, my VHS releases attended. Yeah, if you're that. seeing just a piece of, you know, breast, then it's it's the romantic version. And in some cases, like the Garnet Princess, we put, you know, voile all over the place so that you couldn't really see much at all. Because it wasn't the point of these movies. The right. point of it was romance, not sex. You know, the business, you have to do what you, what you have to do. Yeah. So just one thing, um, and this is really for no reason, except I was really struck by this quote that you gave uh, in a newspaper interview. You said, I'm not really into appealing to the intellectuals. I've had the intellectual audience and they don't really do much for me, but that doesn't mean I can't produce quality work and still appeal to the masses. And I'm really charmed by that because we've talked about the elements that you've incorporated into them. And, and when I copied this, the first thing I thought of was Aaron Spelling. And the thing that Aaron Spelling did was he made things for mass audiences, but he also injected a lot of political commentary in the background. I'm not saying you're being super political, but the, obviously Charlie's Angels was feminism where it could be at the time, right? And on Love Boat, he loved to have intergenerational sort of romances, um, and lots of people were divorced, older, younger, everybody was represented on the show. And these were his ways of injecting these sort of ideas of inclusiveness and that women could be powerful and things like that. And you're doing the same thing. And so when you hear this quote now what do you feel about when looking back on shades of love i guess you've sort of answered that but if you had something else you could add about your memories and about approaching it from this um taking to somebody who has a phd approaching um something that is mass appeal and how do you feel about the series now well the funny thing about it is when i was a professor i was known as the uh the most skilled professor at, at bringing tangents back and I once received an award from one of my classes. Was, the award was called 44 colon 44, which is the longest tangent I actually ever gave in a lecture and brought home, you know, 44 minutes and 44 seconds, right? <laughs> and earlier in this interview, I, I lost my train of thought and was talking about my mother, right? And this is the other side of that tangent the answer to your question, because when I was, when I had written the libretto for In Praise of Love, it was at the New York Philharmonic, members of the Philharmonic playing at Lincoln Center. We waited all night, you know, at Sardis for the reviews. Uh, the review said the music was was not good, but the, the book was great. But I, my mother came from Kansas City to go with me that night and with along with my wife and whatever. And, and we were getting in the limo and I said to my mother, Mom, what'd you think? So what did you think? She goes, you really want to know? And I go, yeah. She said, let me get in the car first. So she got in the car and then she, she looked at me and she said, don't get involved in any more music that you can't hum when you leave the theater. <laughs> and I never forgot that. And when I left the academic world, it was partly that was that provoked me, you know, that the, being nagged by that for 15 years and I wanted to get into a place where I, where you could write stuff that you could hum, you know, do things right, that right. you could hum. And uh, that's the answer is that the very fact that I had some people humming back then from those movies, I, it makes me feel 
very good. Because to me, what's the point of communicating if you're not, you don't have an audience? And even to this day, my, my company, Story Merchant, our, our goal is to take storytellers to their maximum audiences. Um, so we like book stories that can be books and films and television and whatever is available. And the fact that Shades of Love did appeal to that enormous audience and got to a lot of them and be, have them talking and sending us opinions and, you know, giving us advice and sending us stories. Ever since then, I keep getting Shades of Love stories. I'm still in oh, touch wow. with some of the writers who, who wrote the treatments. That makes me feel very, very good about it. Uh, and I'm glad to find somebody like you because it shows that, you know, you never know what your seeds are going to be, you know, when you yeah, plant yeah. seeds. And uh, I'll never forget as a professor, I, 20 years after I left the academic world, I ran into my first book about Homer's Iliad and, uh, a and saw it quoted in a footnote in some other book, you know. And then I, I looked up and saw that it had sold a total of 52 copies in the previous 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Shades of Love was not like that. It sold a lot more than 52 copies. So that's... You know, it j just because you have all these intellectual things in your head doesn't mean you have to use them with everybody. And I'd rather be able to communicate with everybody than just to entertain 12 people in a classroom in Innsbruck, Austria. That happened one time when I gave a lecture on narrative structures and the Quixote, you know. <laughs> and I, I look out there and I see there's 12 people here and I go, what the hell am I doing here? You're like, I can do better than this. Well, you did. Hey guys, thanks so much for hanging out and listening to Ken Achatee uh, talk about creating and producing Shades of Love. That was so much fun for me, that interview. I wasn't really sure what to expect when I contacted him. He was really gracious. Uh, and as you can tell by listening to that interview, he had such a, he was just really warm and he's really actually passionate about the romance genre, which I love. And so it was so great for me to get some sort of documentation about this kind of oddball series that sort of fell through the cracks, even though it came out at a really interesting time in the history of romance in television. And I guess I'll talk about that real briefly after um, I introduce Dan. So, hey, Dan, what's up? Hey, everybody. I am here to discuss the Shades of Love. I've got my tapes right here. We're all set to talk about it. It's going to be great. It should be really fun because I've you're the only second man I think I've really talked to about this show. <laughs> so I, I'm just I, I was just excited to hear a Juice Newton song. Yeah, that's I right. A Juice Newton song and ages, and I've been listening to no, no it, that's not the song that's under, but I've been listening to Queen of Hearts yeah. over and over again for the last week. So yeah, you know it's funny we have a channel. It's a like a Roku channel called Flashback Eighties, and they play a lot of Eighties music videos, and they've been playing Queen of Hearts by Juice Newton quite a bit. And I don't know that I'd ever seen the video before, like, two months ago. And now I've seen it, like, ten times. 
Yes, <laughs> it's very silly. Early eighties. It is, but it's cute. It's cute. If if recently I, I just watched something that was like the first like four hours of MTV someone put oh, on like YouTube yeah, yeah. or or archive.org or so and her her videos are in there like three or four times. They're all the same thing. It's her and her band standing in the same positions. It just cuts to random things happening outside of the band playing. So it's kinda like they shot them all at once and <laughs> took her around town. Yeah, they, they might have she had that song Angel in the Morning I really like too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and Ken actually in the in the interview he did talk about the music because he used a lot of really famous musicians on the soundtrack, which was released by the way. Um, there was what? a there was a legit soundtrack released. Yeah, so this this is a really interesting series. So maybe I should preface this: if you've looked at my book, then you've probably read a little bit about romance theater, and that sort of predates this, and maybe yes. was the precursor to Shades of Love. But also, Shades of Love came out in the midst of Harlequin also making TV movies. I think for paid cable at this point, but then they moved over to they had a weird relationship with network tv like they made movies for cbs but then the movies aired like on cbs affiliates on like sunday afternoons and not in prime time like i don't fully understand the relationship of those films to the network exactly but that's how they kind of ran but anyway just to catch you guys up because i know you're like listening like she's talking about all these different romance shows so like the de- the 80s is the decade of romance. That's where we only spoke of love, right? And soap operas were huge. It was love in the daytime, right? Love in the afternoon, I think was the, the logo there. Um, and there was all kinds of stuff. Love Boat, all these shows that were kind of romance-based. And, um, and so this little series premiered, I think, in 1982, maybe a little earlier than that. But it was called Romance Theater. And what it was, was it was like a novella series. So there would be five episodes a week, right? Half hours. They ran on syndicate, syndicated. So they ran just on like local channels. And every Every day for that week, for half an hour, there would be a story. And at the end of the week, there would just be one full story from beginning, middle, and end. And that would be it. And then the next week, there would be a new story. And there'd be five episodes of that. Um, It ran for like two seasons. It was hosted by Louis Jordan. And I think the second host was Dr. Joyce Brothers, which I have a vague memory of. I only really (laughs) remember Louis Jordan. Wow. After that show went off the air, the people who own the rights to it decided to release it on home video. So what they did was they took out all of the Louis Jordan host segments with the exception of the first one. And then they cobbled all of the episodes together, meaning they just removed the credits from the beginning to the end of every episode. And then they released them as like two hour movies on VHS with these really amazing uh, video box covers that look like Harlequin novels. And they did so well that nobody could have expected how successful they were going to be. Like they moved like 100,000 copies or something like right off the bat of like the I don't know if it was the whole series compiled or one episode or something like that it was ridiculous and so although they didn't release every episode of the series or every story that came out of the series they did release a whole bunch of them and I have every one of them and I've now seen them all and they're amazing they're shot on video they're very stagey um they're very much like watching a soap opera um, and if that's your thing, I highly recommend it. Um, Shades of Love kind of went one better. So what that did was that that was envisioned as you, as Ken talked about in the interview, but just to recap, that that was to be sort of like a Harlequin romance novel told in, in video format. And and the these movies were to be sold in grocery stores, like the Harlequin novels, which is pretty brilliant when you think about it. They were they were made for women to to watch whenever they wanted. So the whole point was that he understood that women were becoming more autonomous and working outside the home and that they might be busy. This way they would have a movie to watch whenever they wanted instead of just coming on TV at some time, right? And so um, it was kind of interesting. And uh, I think they did pretty well. And then at the same time, and if you when I was doing the research for Shades of Love, I was coming across a lot of stuff with Harlequin and I think they their first one was made for like Showtime or HBO. It was called like Love with a Proper Stranger. It stars um oh my god 
Mary Lou Henner, thank you, from Taxi, stars in it. <laughs> and I believe that there was a series of those, but I'm not as well-versed on the Harlequin, those Harlequin. And then there was a series of Harlequins, as I said, that came out that aired like on Sunday afternoons through CBS affiliates. And those are all on VH, uh, not VHS, I'm sorry. I'm still in 1985. These are all on DVD. <laughs> so there's like a change of place is the one I know with Rick Springfield um, at the midnight hour with uh, Simon McCorkendale, who's also in a shades of love. And, um, <clears throat> and they're pretty good. They have a more filmic quality than the first two that I mentioned. They had more money put into them, I think. And then there was the Daniel Steele adaptations that would come in the late eighties and follow through the 90s and there's 23 of those um i have 17 of them <laughs> and uh they're all really good too and then there was some other stuff that happened in between there and of course the jackie collins adaptations blah 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 what ken Agity was honing in on basically was a sort of a cultural moment sort of at the beginning of it and he was figuring out ways to sort of intertwine it with what harlequin had already done in terms of selling these their books in grocery stores and things like that and he was basically using the same blueprint and so dan has shown an interest in talking about these movies i was always really hesitant about it because i know that they're very much straight romances and that's not for everybody and you always take a chance when you go to a man and you say hey watch an episode of Shades of Love for me. And you're never quite sure what they're going to say, right? So so I was pretty hesitant. But he picked up a couple episodes on his own accord and watched them. And so the two that we're going to talk about for this little portion of this episode is Echoes in Crimson, which starred Greg Evigan, and The Rose Cafe, which starred Parker Stevenson. Both movies, Ken Atchity talked of somewhat at length within the interview. So you already have some background on it already, which is good. And uh, maybe we'll talk about others later on. There are 16 in total, and I've seen 14 of them. And um, and I've watched a few just preparing for my interview with Ken and also preparing to talk about this. So I may shoot out some episode titles while we're talking. I won't go in depth in them or overload people with um, these films. But you should seek them out if you can. Overall, the series is very, very, very enjoyable. There's one or two that I don't love. But even if I don't love them, it doesn't mean I didn't like them. The, he, there's, no, there's not a bad one in the crop as far as I'm concerned. So we're going to go ahead and start with Echoes in Crimson. <laughs> returns to her hometown to pursue a job in an art gallery, she's reunited with Grant, her ex, a former football player whose leg injury has also brought him back home. Anne is still nursing old wounds from the original breakup, but Grant plans on making up for lost time. That's the story. There's never, uh, well, there is a subplot in here that I found really interesting. It's unique from the other Shades of Love, um, mostly, in that there's a murder mystery, which is really uncommon for these uh, but, and we'll talk about that probably as we go through this. That's basically the story from point A to point B. A girl comes back to town, meets her old boyfriend. Will or will they not fall back in love? Okay, so um, Patty Talbot played Ann Andrews. Um, Patty ended up not making a lot of things. And we'll talk a little bit about her career here. But um, let's just start with Dan. Tell me about your first foray into Shades of Love. Uh, you, you put Greg Evigan in it. I'm going to check it out. 
And so when I saw that when I saw that he was in one, I was like, so do I do I get like the one with Parker Stevenson? Do I get the one with Manimal? Do I do I get the one with B.J. McKay? And of course, I'm going to go for Greg Avigan. And um, it, 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 it's funny because whenever I t- tune into something that is like pure romance, for some reason, I always add, add comedy after it. And that, there's there really isn't much comedy in this. No. So I had to kind of put myself in a in the frame of mind that this is a romance. Well, it, it looks like she's trying to begin a new life, but then she winds up like living next door or nearby to her lover of several years. But it is Greg Evigan, so so that's not 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 too problematic. I thought it has a it, it's about seventy five or so minutes long, so it's got a nice pace to it. I was I was never bored. I enjoyed myself all the way through. I I did think on occasion um, Grant's character was maybe a little too pushy. Yeah. And, and and because there's a lot of moments where Anne's like, Grant, I don't think we really I can't do this, and he's like, okay. Well, you want to go to a movie? No, no, really, sincerely, when I say I can't do this, I'll bring a movie over to you. No, really, Grant, I'm saying we can't. And he, maybe that's like a football-y guy kind of jock kind of thing. I don't know, but he's, he, um, he really wants to spend time with her. Is, is what we want to have happen. I, I will say that the the I kind of misread the back of the VHS box because it's so okay. so I'll skip I'll skip some of it. But we just we just get um you know Grant sets out to win back her trust, but the scars from their past relationship run too deep. Besides, Anne's new job commands all of her attention as she unravels the deadly mystery that haunts the gallery. And so for some reason, I thought, and then like two two lines down, it says a bigger mystery unfolds. And if you continue reading, it's about their relationship. But for some reason, I thought this was going to become like, because there are lots of shots of them in the snow and such and yeah. on the on the box cover. So I thought in my mind, I imagined it like ending with like the two of them on skis being chased down a mountain by like art smugglers or something with guns shooting at them. I don't know why <laughs> I thought that. So I sat. So when I sat there watching the movie, I thought, okay, now obviously we have the romance develop. Oh, I, not not developing because they've already had a romance. I guess trying to is it going to be reignited? Is it going to be rekindled? And very slowly, there is this sort of mystery going on at the art gallery. But, and this this isn't really a, a spoiler to say that, you know, they live happily ever after, but the, the art gallery mystery thing ends so quickly, yeah. I thought I missed something. So I was watching it, and you get this scene in the art gallery where something big is revealed, and, and, and Grant shows, and stuff happens, and then you get, like, two more scenes, and then it ended. And I was like, wait a minute, what, what just happened? I was waiting for some sort of big ending. And then I went back, and I when I watched the second time, and I knew what they were doing, that that wasn't really that big of a portion of the movie. I calmed down a little bit, and I and I enjoyed it. But it, it was okay. it was weird. It's like a thing if you like if you read about like um, and th- this is going to be a completely ridiculous um uh example. But there's a Clint Eastwood film called Firefox, which. From mm, which yeah. was sold when I was a little kid. I saw that it was sold as having Star Wars style planes flying through over mountains and shooting at each other kind of thing. That was what the movie was sold to me as like a nine or ten year old as. So when I went to see that in the theater with my dad, you don't realize it's like two hours and fifteen minutes, and and I sat there the whole time waiting for the Firefox fighting, which doesn't happen till the very end. 
and, I, and so I was like, "Ooh, I'm getting a little uncomfortable here. When, when's the what I thought this was going to be? When is that going to happen?" And that happened not not in as an annoying way because it's much shorter, but that kind of happened with me here. Is I was like, "I am enjoying the romance. It's it's going really bumpy at first, but it's building up, and I, I like the um I like the setup, and I, and I like them. Even I can understand her her reticence, but they're having some lovely montages. They're you know shades of love. They really got their montages down. Yeah, they do. But but like I said, the first time I was watching, I kept expecting there to be some sort of big, not action film, but some sort of, but that doesn't really happen. So then going back the second time, I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is quite, quite charming. And apart from, you know, like I said, Grant, maybe a bit being a bit too pushy. The, the last thing, I think it's well-crafted. I think it's well put together and fun to watch. It also features uh, Juice Newton singing The Sweetest Thing, which I won't sing right now, but maybe I will later. And the, the interesting thing I thought is that when it begins... It's very wintry, and several times you hear Christmas carols. But it never, mm. it, it, it. I, I thought if this was made today, this would be like echoes of a Christmas tree or something. It, it would be all about yeah. that. Would be the big selling point. But here, it's kind of, it's in the background to to the stuff, and I, I kind of like that. That it, it it's like adjacent Christmas adjacent rather than Christmas um, heavy. And and um and something about setting it at that time period too always grabs me, makes it feel a little more romantic. So yeah, I was I was quite charmed by it once I got over my stupidity from reading the 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 copy on the back of the box. You thought it was gonna be like a James Bond thriller or something. You, you know what? Yeah, you know, I I didn't quite think that, but I thought there might be a sequence in the end where like they have to team up and beat up some bad guys or something. I didn't know. I just my first one. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I really like the Christmas background setting too and I kind of forgot about it till I rewatched it this past week for this episode. I thought, gosh, this is a Christmas movie, isn't it? In a lot of ways, but you're right. They never directly mentions Christmas, but there's presents everywhere. There's snow, there's Christmas decorations, there's yes. music. It's all there and it's just sort of uh, filtering through the background and that kind of made it nice that it wasn't central to the film it made it sort of interesting it sort of became like the setting became a separate character in a way right mm, yes. and and it was kind of interesting that way i really like this one i like greg evigan quite a bit in it he's really charming i like the the sort of uh i called him i think in the interview with ken kind of the working class hero type and I thought he did a good job as being the guy in the flannel, you know, walking yes. around. Like, you could tell he was probably a football player really into sports or whatever. But I think that there's two mysteries in the art gallery. So we'll address the first one first. So there is a murder, which I think is pretty unusual. I don't... There are... in There's intrigue in mm -hmm. several of the episodes. But I don't remember there directly being another murder quite like this. Where it's like, oh, the guy that you're replacing at this art gallery? Eh, he's murdered a couple weeks ago. Murdered, it was horrible. Yes. <laughs> they don't know who did it. But anyway, good luck locking up tonight. And so, um, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, and then, they, and then they have this semi red herring with the guy who works at the gallery with her, this sort of older British guy. And then there's this other guy that's sort of the, there's often there's love triangles in these. And so he, there's this, the guy who runs the gallery is sort of like in love with Anne as well, sort of. And, um, and he may or may not be another red herring, but by the time everything gets revealed by the end, there's this really weird moment where the employee who's not the murderer says to uh, Anne, oh, don't you want to meet the owner of the gallery? And then she motions towards Greg Evigan, but they never directly say he's actually mm. the owner of the gallery. And then they like go into an office and he's made this, he's also an artist, it turns out. Of, he's of course, of course he is. Of course. Yeah, he's one of, the, he's one of those guys who I buy it. 
you know, football star, sure. Very creative artist, sure. Can woo any lady, sure. Looks fantastic with that beard and mustache or without, sure, I'm in. Sure, he can do it all. But, like, he's made this, heard this really neat neon kind of artwork of uh, Groucho Marx because um, he'd come over to her house at one point impersonating mm-hmm. Groucho Marx with a big bag of popcorn and very romantic and wonderful and sweet and everything, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, but then he never directly says, I'm the owner of the gallery. And mm-hmm. and then it ends. And I'm like, was he the owner of the gallery? Because nobody's clarified that for me. But uh, I think he must be because one of the tropes that happens, not a lot of times you know the guy is loaded at the beginning, but sometimes you don't know. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that he actually has a lot of money. So like not to be too spoilery, but in Tangerine Taxi, I think I actually <laughs> talked about it in the interview, there's this really great scene where the guy who drives a taxi asks out the, the female protagonist and he takes her on like a picnic but it's at night and so they're sort of camping and they end up falling asleep in this sort of like tent and when she wakes up the next morning she's like oh my god we're on somebody's property and she motions towards like down a hill or up a hill or something and there's a mansion right and then the love interest says oh that's my house oh oh you're a multimillionaire. Huh. <laughs> that's interesting and so and that happens periodically throughout the show and i'm not saying they're all multi-millionaires but um but a good portion of them are very well to do and so um, that's not an unusual thing. So I kind of think he must have owned the gallery. He must have invested his football, Super mm. Bowl. There's this great part yeah. at the end when they're, when um, she's like, we can't do this again, Grant, because you treated me like a second-class citizen when you got your football job, or I don't know what you call that, when you got drafted. <laughs> and you got your football job. And I you got you, you and your football game. job. Oh. <laughs> you so much. I know sports. And then she's like, you got your stupid football job, and you just left me behind. And I don't know what to do about it, Grant, and I can't go through it again. So he writes her a letter, right? And he's mm-hmm. like, I'm at the Super Bowl, and all I can think about is you. And I love that. I love that he went to the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's like a really famous football player. And so, like, and he's like, but all I can think about, Anne, is you. And I was such a jerk to have let you go. I didn't mean to treat you like that. Please forgive me, Anne. Please forgive me. You know what I mean? It's just, it's awesome. And he's like, I meant to mail that, but then I had my knee injury. And I didn't want you to think that I was just asking you back because I hurt my knee because I love you, Anne. I was willing to let you go because I loved you. And you know, I I bought every freaking line. It's (laughs) It's, so good. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah, because I I did too. But there is something about like someone sitting down and writing and going, well, um, he was, he played football. Um, Where could he be? Oh, the Super Bowl. You know, be like, he was a, you know, he was like, he was, he was an astronaut. Where did he go? Oh, Pluto. You know, something like that. It's it's like, it's not, it's not, it's so unrealistic that it's wonderful, wonderful. It's, it's so charming. It's it's fantasy. I I think. Yes, exactly, you know, exactly. The thing about Shades of Love that I find so charming, like you just said, is that it is purely based in fantasy, but the fantasy could be like you find out this guy owns this mansion at the bottom of the hill that you've been sleeping at, or he's just an ex-football player with a knee injury, but there's still so much romance there, even though he lives in a little apartment somewhere in Canada. You know what I mean? And and like it's just about the act of falling in love, you know, and it doesn't really matter necessarily where – you are positioned in life in terms of your wealth, although that helps, that feeds into the fantasy, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the major component to it because it's not about whisking these women off their feet in obvious ways. I will say that. One of the things that I think Ken talked about in the interview, and if he didn't, I'll just mention here briefly, he liked to hire actresses that didn't necessarily have very long resumes or weren't very well known because he wanted them to be the kind of women that if they were famous, the woman watching the show wouldn't be able to project herself into the character as well. Mm, Gotcha. 
And so he liked using these kind of like unknown actresses so that we could see ourselves in that role. And I think the character of Anne is a, is a really interesting one because she's written in, in a kind of position that so many women and men have found themselves in where they're just trying to restart their life after like, the, I think her mom had died. And after taking uh, this huge chunk of her life to take care of her mom, she now wants to pursue this dream she has, which is to work in an art, art gallery and discover new artists, right? And that's not a huge dream. It's a cool dream, but that's not like I'm going to be a rock star all of a sudden. It's like, I want this job where, you know, I do this thing that I'm passionate about. And now I have a chance to do it. And so Anne has a lot of characteristics about her that I find very relatable. You know, like it's a pretty well-written character. At the same time, though, it's like everybody's in love with her, which is part of the fantasy too, I guess, right? Because like her boss just can't get enough of her. You're that perfect mixture of intelligence and beauty, Anne. Please go Mm -hmm. out with me. And she's like, I don't think so. And he's like, then I'm going to date your roommate. And she's like, okay. And so, and another trope of the Shades of Love is that there's always a a friend. Sometimes it's a woman, sometimes it's a man, depends. Um, But it's usually a woman. And she kind of helps guide uh, the protagonist to her ultimate destination. But this friend is very special because she's played by Joy Bouchel, who you may know from Terror Train or Humongous or Pinball Summer. Yes. And yes. she's amazing. She's probably my favorite of the friends in all of the ones that I've seen, with the exception of Tangerine Taxi, because the best friend is a guy played by Steve Marshall from Night of the Creeps. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's also the love triangle. He's the best friend in the mm-hmm. love triangle. And so wow. you can't really top that one. But um, but Joy Bouchelle comes in uh, a close second because she's really charming mm-hmm. in this. And she's a lot of fun. And she just kind of shows up to give advice because she's a stewardess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, they, so she's always on a flight. And so yes. she just she just drops off because they're sharing the apartment while Anne gets her life together. And she's like, oh, tell me about Grant. And then she gives some advice and then she catches another flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great to see her. I, I didn't know she was going to be in this, and the moment I saw, I saw, I it, it took a moment, and I was like, um, oh, no way! Oh my gosh, humongous! Oh boy! Uh, yeah, <laughs> no blueberries nice. in this one. No blueberries. Yeah. No. I did notice. I, 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 I guess I read the back of this box really poorly. <laughs> <laughs> because I do notice that right here it says it's art historian Ann Andrews jumps at the chance to rebuild her career and takes a job at a prestigious metropolitan gallery. But the shadow of Christmas's past overtakes her. I, I didn't even see the word Christmases in there until right now. Boy, I did a bad job. I guess I didn't want to ruin it. I didn't want to yeah, spoil <laughs> anything. I didn't want to spoil anything, but I did want to have a look at the back. I did want to have a quick look at the back. And I think I saw the words deadly mystery that haunts the gallery. I thought, is this going to be like Scooby-Doo or James Bond? I don't know. Yeah, I know. It, it leads to so much potential, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Based on the back. And um, and they did a pretty good job, I think, with it. But mm-hmm. you're right. The murder mystery is sort of like an afterthought in a lot of ways. Like, I don't think it necessarily needs to be there, mm-hmm. you know, but it's there. And it's not bad for what it is. I think the red herring worked because I think the original, the first time I watched it, I don't think I guessed. Okay. The killer? Did you? Um, you you know, I I didn't, and I and I think that's I didn't. I really didn't. And I was going to say I think that, and I think that's because I expected there to be like another twist in there. 
Yeah. Um, and but and it kind of just it's sort of not quite just happens, but it kind of is just like oh okay. But no, I I did not guess uh, the 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 bad guy, the bad girl, the bad someone. I don't know the bad someone. I will say that Anne took a lot of it lightly because she is at the gallery one night and somebody else is there when they're not supposed to be, and she sees him and he's very clearly lit in this alley that she's looking at him at. She's hiding at the end of the alley, and. Then she just goes home. I think she makes a phone call and then nobody's there. And so she's like, I'll have some food. And then that's the yeah. end of it. Mm-hmm. And then and then her roommate calls and she's like, well, maybe he was just doing inventory. You know, I never thought of that. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so easy <laughs> yes. to like brush off like yeah. this, this guy sneaking around in the dark. That's our Anne. Yeah. yeah, in the in the basement of the gallery. It's so mm-hmm. weird. But um but it's a lot of fun and, and I like that it's there. I love the little subplots. Um a lot of them have that where something will happen and um and they're pretty fun that way. I rewatched one last night called The Emerald Tear with Ed Marinero. And um that one's really cute because it's um about a female reporter who dresses like a male reporter, like from the forties, with like the hat. And like the blazer. And she gets this idea that um, Ed Marinero has bought what's called the Emerald Tear. And it's this big giant piece of jewelry. And so she tries to romance him to get the answer out of him. And so there's not necessarily like a subplot. Except that you're supposed to find out whether or not he actually does have the Emerald Tear. But it builds into the story really well. Because she's coming under like duplicitous circumstances into his life. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's about honesty, right? And is she going to write the story and whatever, right? And it's kind of cute. But there's there's always some kind of neat sort of glamorous mystery happening in a lot of these. That's really fun for me. I, I, I'd like to see more of these. I know we haven't talked the second one yet, but no, um, no. I, I, I'd like to see some more of these. Yeah, well, I'll give you a little background on this one. So this, so as Ken mentioned in the interview, he did work with several female directors, which was interesting because that was still pretty uncommon in the 80s, I think, um, female directors. And so this one was directed by a woman named Carol Wickman, which he talked about in the interview, so I won't go too in-depth. But she did die right after she made this. This was her only film. Um, she was an uncredited producer and writer on Terror Train, um, which fascinates me. She, I think she felt like it wasn't the right project for her, so she sort of acquiesced and um, suggested... I don't know if acquiesced is the right word. She turned it down, and she... Uh, suggested her then-boyfriend, Roger Spottiswood, um, who would go on to direct it. And I think he would go on to make a James Bond film. Am I right? Was that? Yeah, t- Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, so he would go on to big things. Um, and she worked very hands-on. So if you ever read David Grove's uh, book, Jamie Lee Curtis, Scream Queen, there's just a little bit of her in there. But she was, she was very hands-on. She became very close to Derek McKinnon, who plays... Um, somebody, I don't want to give too much away about Terror Train. She, he plays yeah. the victim at the beginning of Terror Train. And Jamie Lee Curtis as well. Uh, they all stayed pretty friendly. I think she's somebody that should maybe be documented better mm-hmm. because it seems like she had kind of a neat career and was really well loved. This is really the only thing she ever did. And I think Ken said that he would have worked with her again had he had the opportunity um, because he really enjoyed working with her. And of course, she wasn't the only um, horror connection we have here because Patty Talbot, who played Anne, was also in Eternal Evil, which was directed mm. by the guy who directed My Bloody Valentine, George Mahalika. Ma- Ma- yes, Ma- yeah. I, Ma- I never Ma- am sure how to say his name. Um, mm. That was also has a different title. The title might be The Blue Man, I think is the AKA, which is what I've seen it under. And so, of course, he worked with uh, Joy Bouchelle in Pinball Summer because he directed that. 
And he would go on, George Mahalika, to direct <laughs> an episode, the last episode of Shades of Love, I believe. At, at any rate, it was the one titled Moonlight Magic, which is one I haven't seen yet. Um, so so there's a little horror cred in there. And uh, Joy Bichelle and Patty Talbot were also featured in a video release titled The Guaranteed Way to Pick Up Single Women. Huh. And I want to see it. It's me too. What? I'm almost positive they got it wrong. <laughs> And that it's not guaranteed, but I would like to see what they say. <laughs> I'd be curious to see what they suggest. Um, so, and it could just be the title of the movie, but it sounds like it's a self-help video. I'm not sure. It does. It does. Yeah. Wow. And I really want to see it and I really need to see it. So if anybody out there has any Same familiarity here. with that, yeah, contact us. Or if Joy Talbot is listening or, um, I mean, Joy Michelle or Patty Talbot is listening, then they should give us a call. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you want to say about Echoes and Crimson? Uh, like I said, once I it sort of adjusted myself to to uh, the, the sort of pure romance mode, it's really quite charming. And it, it like I said, it moves quickly. Uh, Greg Evigan is great. Uh, Patty Talbot is, is great. It, it 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 moves well. It's nicely put together. And yeah, I was I hate to say charmed over and over again, but I think that's what it is to me. I found it quite charming uh, to watch, and I got to the end and thought I'd watch that again. So there you go. Yeah, that's what I like about these films. I think in the interview I said that they were simple, and then I said I don't. That's not me trying to denigrate them, but they are. They're mm-hmm. they're very simple. They're they're, they're really boiled, yeah, yeah. boiled down to the essence of what a, a romance movie should be, and I love them. And there's an air of innocence that even though there's um, sex scenes with some nudity. Mm-hmm. They they're still they still have this air of innocence in them that that you don't really see a lot, especially yeah. now. And there's nothing wrong with sexy movies. There's nothing wrong with them. I I like them and I watch them myself. But like, but I also like these movies that are just trying to get to the heart of romance over everything else. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, just and that that was yesterday after after I'd watched the the two of these, I I spent like um I just an hour kind of walking around working through my thoughts on them, and I realized that there's there's so sort of straight straightforward, but but in a good way, um that um there really wasn't a lot I had to say about them apart from if you like a good romance time, you like looking at Greg Evigan, then this is this is fun and Christmassy stuff. Yeah. It's got a lot going for it. And uh, to be honest, when I first started collecting these, this was one of the first ones I got because I don't know what they look like now because I have them all. Um, but when I was originally trying to buy them off eBay and uh, Amazon, they were selling some of them for over $100 a piece. And mm-hmm. um, this was one of the ones that was the most affordable. And so I bought it because I could buy it. You know what I mean? It took it took yeah. me a while to acquire some of these. Um, like uh, Ballerina in the Blues, I think was going for a lot of money and then somebody put one up and I don't think they realized that people were asking for like 60 bucks and it went up for like five and I was like, do oh, bot. Wow. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> just click, click on this. And I had it. And so like, um, so like they were really hard to acquire, but if, if memory serves this one, and I think the Garnet princess, um, sell pretty affordably for some reason, maybe there's just more copies of them floating around. I'm not sure. And I would recommend both of them. Um, and so let's just go on to the Rose Cafe. I'd like to live out all my dreams And if I could Yes, if I could The nicest one would be with you And you'd be here with me Don't you ever get lonely
first ones I actually did buy um, because of Parker Stevenson starting it. So let me just sure. give you a, a little breakdown of this one. So as Courtney prepares for her upcoming wedding, she is also working on opening up her own restaurant. Her life is turned upside down when she accidentally runs into an old high school friend named Josh, who is now a millionaire and also recently single. That's the Rose Cafe. The first Shades of Love I ever saw, and I think I talked about this in the interview, so I'll just do it briefly, was um, Champagne for Two, which starred Nicholas Campbell, who was the original hitchhiker and was on a TV show called uh, The Insiders in the mid-80s. It's really good. I really like it. I, I saw that it was called Shades of Love, colon, you know, Champagne for Two. And I thought, oh, is this a series? And I started researching them. And then I saw Parker Stevenson was in one. And this turned out to be one of the more affordable VHS tapes as well, luckily. So I think this might have been the second one I acquired. And it's gotten a lot of play because <laughs> Parker Stevenson. And um, sure. and because I, I, I really like it. I have a little issue with it. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But overall, I think it's very well done. I, I Originally, I didn't like the actress who played Courtney so much. But mm. she's grown on me. Yeah. And she's actually in Two Shades of Love. She's the only actress I can think of that starred in two of them. Um, usually they're just in the one and in, in little white lies, she's blonde. And it took me like forever to figure out it was the same actress. Um, I think the problem I have with Linda Smith as Courtney is not Linda Smith as Courtney. It's that they put her in some really hideous clothes. I don't know if you recognized her wardrobe (laughs) at all. It was really ugly. And, um, and I couldn't figure out why Josh was attracted to her. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> like the outfits were just distracting me from everything. And now I've eased into it and I really appreciate the character. But it took me a little while to to get to warm up. So there's this TV movie called Jane Doe with Karen Valentine. And Karen Valentine's beautiful. I mean, it would be impossible to find somebody that would tell you she's not beautiful. I can't imagine anybody thinking that. But in, in Jane Doe, she has a mullet. Oh, Lord. The f- first time I saw that movie I thought I hated it because I couldn't I was like 20 something and I was like I can't stand this mullet I don't want to maybe I was a teenager when I saw it and I was like I can't look at her I can't look at her and so like I put the movie aside for years and then <laughs> and then I picked it up because it was a tv movie and it had a VHS release and I rewatched it and I was like this is really good and I was like it's her hair it's just her hair I feel the same way here that's just a long-winded way of me saying that the wardrobe department really let me down in this episode but but in general I like everything about it what did you think of the Rose Cafe? I quite like this one too. I um I I think I probably noticed that Courtney's wardrobe wasn't the best, um, <laughs> but it it didn't bother me. I I, I it didn't bother me. I, I liked her. I figure I figure if Parker Stevenson shows up, sees her, and is like, yeah, then I'm in. You know, that's that's yeah. that's enough for me. I will say the three things about this one that um I don't know I don't want to say I disliked, but that sort of struck me when I was thinking about this and i know this is a romance thing but like her fiance is so obviously a, a jerk yeah. and and like like just they act a lot more like business partners than they do some people who are about yeah. to get married and and in the end when he kind of you know when they kind of end it and he pulls his final zing on her he, he he's a very obvious character from the moment you see him uh, the moment, the first moment I saw him, I thought, "Oh, that's like her accountant," and then I said, "Oh no, that's her fiance." <laughs> the, just real quickly, like his his turn of events don't make sense to me because he's a business partner, so she's opening this cafe, and mm-hmm. he's like owns a certain percentage of it, and I, she owns a certain percentage of it, and he's he's invested thousands of dollars to help Courtney open this restaurant. And then we find out he's like, oh, I thought she'd get over in a couple weeks and then become a housewife. And you're like, that doesn't even make sense. No. Because, like, he's how much money did he put into her dream just because he's thinking two weeks later she'd get bored? Like, yeah. 
does that thing in the end where he's like um, when he's really mad at her and there's about to, to end between them. He does the thing where he said, well, I hope you do all this, you know, and it, I think we've all heard this from someone or other in our life. I hope you do this and get it out of your system and then come home and cook for me. Maybe, maybe you haven't heard that specific thing, but, you know, that, it's something like that. Not cooking. I'm a really bad cook. <laughs> But it, 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 he, the moment he says it, yeah, it just seems like um, maybe in the original. I mean, it it says here based on a story by Sandra St. James. Mm-hmm. It, maybe in the original story, like the business partner and the fiance were separate or something, because that would make more oh, sense. Yeah, that might you know, be, if yeah. if maybe if if maybe like the fiance wasn't always there and didn't quite realize the extent of it. And then he maybe shows up at the end is like, what? I thought you were going to, I thought you were like, you know, cooking at a McDonald's and you were just going to give this up in a little bit. <laughs> That's how much know? I pay attention to you, Courtney. Yeah, exactly. But, but there's, there, there is something about the way that like he, he, he's obviously the business guy and he does all this stuff and thousands of dollars and all this work just to get to the point where he's thinking, okay, she's going to stop doing this and just let her dream go. It, yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And it's, um, his character from the get go, you see him and you're like, okay when's she gonna get rid of him and and what's he gonna do to cause trouble or whatever and yeah and you're right that doesn't that doesn't make sense the second uh the second thing is that um that thing with the construction um because oh, yeah. in in the so they're in montreal i believe they say yes. they are they, i don't know if they're in montreal I've, n- I've been in toronto i've never been to montreal not that they're like right next to each other they're in canada is what i'm saying i'm sorry to all canadians listening who are like damn come on that's like that's like saying well i've, I've been to los angeles but i've never been to nashville i know they're they're completely different things so they're they open the restaurant and the restaurant is doing great and then all of a sudden one morning the city decides to start tearing up the street in front of the restaurant but not only in front of the restaurant which which obviously will limit people being able to park there and which might discourage people from coming to the restaurant but there's a moment you're like okay well maybe they can park on the next street over then i think they make a point of saying like oh this construction is going on for like five blocks it's like whoa that's that's i mean do they do that in cities do they literally tear up the street for like five blocks that just seems like a you would do it maybe on one block but five blocks they make it sound like her boyfriend orchestrated it too Kind like there's some bit, point yeah. where they insinuate that he somehow made them do construction in the area to like to like ruin her business and and you're like wow that's a lot of work and, and it, that is yeah that is a lot of work just to just to get a really nice chef um cooking for you every day rather than for everybody else <laughs> she does look like a and good chef though like the food looks she does. good it looks great yeah the food looks fantastic but that that construction thing i understand what they're doing i understand it's um you know this is the construction thing is sort of a variation of the uh you know what's the mystery at the art gallery from the you know it's just a bit yeah. of extra stuff to co- now she comes up with a perfect way of dealing with it and that she she rents a space outside of the construction where you can park and then you get in a little surrey with the fringe well no there's no fringe yeah. you get in the surrey with the horse and very romantically it takes you down the street which are are all torn up but they can go down the middle of the street and they drop you off and it's a great solution to the problem but it's just i can't i just i just can't think of like a major city saying well we got these funds if we don't use them within the next two months they're gonna expire uh, i guess uh so let's tear up five city consecutive city blocks that just seems bad for business yeah it does you're thinking too hard, Dan. Are you trying to mansplain <laughs> and, Rose Cafe to me? Because you can't no, do it. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, it's just that. <laughs> it's a good point. I never thought of it because because the way they shoot it at the beginning, it just looks like this little 
square outside her restaurant. And I'm like, it's really not that bad. But then it destroys her life. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, yes. I guess it's much more than I thought. Yeah, because to me, I thought, oh, that that's pretty rough. But surely people can just park around the corner. But they do. They somewhere in there, I think, like her friend says, five blocks. I thought just, what? That doesn't make, well, maybe it does make sense. I, I don't understand the way Canadian construction works. I'll be first in a minute. Yeah, we, we'll have to look up Canadian construction next time we, we, we convene for this episode. Uh, maybe there's a fun video with like like that how to guarantee to pick up single women. Maybe there's a fun Canadian construction videos with the male stars of Shades of Love. Yeah. Watch that. That would be good. And the, the, one, the one other thing uh, about this that isn't really a problem, but it's just that Greg Evigan felt like a real part of Echoes in Crimson, whereas I, I'm not sure the story um, uh, behind the making of the Rose Cafe. But Parker Stevenson is kind of he's he's kind of like the Incredible Hulk, in you know with uh, with um, Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. You know when I was a kid, I'd sit there for 50 minutes waiting for the Hulk to show up for two yeah. minutes. And when he did, it was all worth it. And this is sort of like Parker Stevenson. He's kind of a <laughs> guest star. He kind of drops yeah. in and out of it. Like she, she has all these plot lines and all these things going on. Then all of a sudden he shows up and says, let me take you for a ride in the, the horse-drawn carriage. Let me show you my kick-ass apartment or house or whatever the heck it was. Let me let me take you here. Let me ta-. And, and he, he keeps kind of dropping in and sort of pulling her out, uh, all the uh, um, plot lines that are going on. They have a little romance. Maybe they fool around a bit. And then she drops back in when he takes off to go to whatever it is he's doing. And in the end, of course, it's it's implied that they're, um, you know, hopefully they'll be together and things like that. But I guess he'll still keep dropping in and out of her life because that's the way his life is. That's interesting. That is, is it just, I felt like he was, um, he's, he's, he's almost like, I'm trying to think of a better example than the Hulk. No, that makes sense. If if you have a movie you love, where like a like Tommy Lee Jones in um that great um Aaron Spelling film, uh Charlie's Angels, you know the way he drops <laughs> in and out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's almost that's almost what this is like. This hunky yeah. guy who shows up, does something, and then yeah, you know what I mean. I'm trying to remember what country because she's like because he shows up towards the end when everything's kind of falling apart for her with her with her fiance, and and he's like, oh, you know, I was in Mazatlan, and then we went directly to Nice, and then we went, you know like he just names all these places that he's been like somehow one trip led to another and he's closing deals and, and yeah. we don't really know what josh does for a living it's ne- i love that by the way we, we just know that he's got deals and mergers and things happening yes, things and she has this yeah she actually says to him about um um he talks about being a millionaire and so she he said i got the first million my wife got the second because he's divorced mm-hmm. and he's like my wife got the second and she's like oh what about the third and he's like oh, i'm working on it and that's how you know he has like a gazillion dollars but we never hear exactly what he does for a living we just know that he jets around a lot and that's just it that's what he does so he's gone through a lot of it because he's he's making like business deals but the business deals are very vague and and i love i was thinking about how the actor delivers the lines because she's like josh i thought you were in can and he's like oh well you know that led to amsterdam and then sydney and then mm-hmm. London, you know, just and I, I always think about the actors when they have to say those lines, like acting like they've traveled all over the world when, they, yeah. when they're really just like hanging out at like the Motel Six, waiting for their next shot to get set <laughs> yes, up. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I don't say that to um that that is that isn't a bad thing. I just I just found it interesting in the in the structure of it. Oh, when he brings her to his house and the fireplace is already going. Yes. And you're the like, champagne that's is there. dangerous, yeah. Josh. That is dangerous. Yeah. Let's see if somebody there. Like, yeah, you're right. The champagne was all set up. And Parker Stevenson is a lot of things. He's a lot of things. But one thing that he <laughs> is, is he is a perfect romantic lead. He's mm-hmm. perfect. Like, the way mm-hmm. he delivers his lines 
and everything that's it's about there's an there's an underlying I don't know what I'll call it the Harlequin vibe. He's got a vibe mm-hmm. under him. Not in everything he does. He's a very good actor. But when he does these kinds of movies, there's a vibe underneath him that it's like he understands the machinations of romance, right? And yes. and yeah. and he's perfect in these kind of movies because whereas Greg Evigan, like I said, he's kind of like the working class hero guy. Yes. This is just yeah. the dream boat in the horse-drawn carriage that shows up and he's perfect for like the fantasy of the perfect boyfriend husband to be in these types of movies and books. He's like, he's Mm -hmm. like Harlequin personified, like made real to me in these movies. And so like, it's hilarious. Like everything is perfect. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with him. And as a matter of fact, the whole movie, like, you know, like boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. The whole part about the boy loses girl hinges on her Mm -hmm. and not on, he's done nothing wrong Mm -hmm. at all. Through this, he has no faults, nothing. (laughs) And like, you can't find a flaw within anything about his character. He's just the perfect guy. And so like, after their night, first night together where they have sex, she wakes up and I guess he's making her breakfast or he makes her breakfast or whatever. And then she's talking about like how her life is going in all these different directions. And he's just like, but I love you. You know, I don't know what he says exactly, (laughs) but you know, she's like, you know, I've got the cafe and, and all this stuff's happening. And, you know, and I have this other relationship and I have to figure things out. He's like, but I love you, Courtney, you know, and and I'm here. And like, you know what I mean? And it's just like, and he's so, he's so, he already knows what he wants. Like, there's no questions Mm -hmm. on his part. Everything is about Courtney's insecurities and Courtney's problems, you know, and it's kind of interesting. He's not flawed at all. Like, I can't find a single flaw in him. And, and there's a great thing too. Where you get the feeling that because he has the the means to, he he can either if it it all becomes too much for her, he can take her away from everything, mm. or if she still wants to be there, he can make sure that she's where she is. Yeah, which he does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so it's kind of like first off, it's like he's he's kind of. They're kind of getting to know each other, and then we can see, yeah, I, I think uh, she might be into me because I'm uh, Josh Harper, right? Is that his name, Josh Harper? Something um, like that, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm Josh. And then there's sort of a feeling of, you know, you're, you're telling me all the um, all, all the things going on and all the, and all the everything. You know, like, I own my own jet. You know, like that that horse-drawn carriage I brought you in, that flies. You know, it's just like, oh, I've got all this fantastic stuff. I can bring you into another world where none of this is problematic and and you don't have to worry about it again but she wants her 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 restaurant and so he does what he does in the end to make sure that he has that she has the restaurant and it's hers and she has you know she only has to continue to be a great chef and you know and 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 love josh harper of course that was a really nice touch because um her boyfriend owned 51 percent, i think of the or fiance of the restaurant and then he sold it and then to wormwood or whatever it was called wildwood or <laughs> woody wood yeah peckerwood whatever, <laughs> whatever the, name the company was and then we find out that josh is the <laughs> runs peckerwood industries right and then she's like and then he but he actually gives her the extra percent now he could have done two things he could have just given her the freaking restaurant which is what i should have done but i do like 
that that where her boyfriend was always holding something against her, like something he could use. You know, being being the the uh, what's that called? What do they call that? The stakeholder, the biggest stakeholder, right? In the yeah, the shareholder, yeah, the shareholder, yeah. Josh makes them complete equals, which is which is just as good, maybe in a way, as giving her the whole restaurant. But but like he understands how important it is to her, so he gives her equal control. You know, and and I thought that that was a really nice touch. To me, why he didn't give her full control of the restaurant is probably for sort of the same reason that her fiance had his chunk because she's doing he's doing the business. Yeah, and he's doing he was doing the business, uh, and she's. Um, and she's doing the cooking and stuff. So with someone like Josh in charge, who has people who send him reports no matter where he is in the world. And this was before, you know, well, he probably had some sort of personal computer. But this is before, you know, you emailed him to anyone. Right. So when he got sent a report, I don't know, is it over the telegram or over the telex? I don't know. I don't know how we would have received it. But um, to have him say, here's here's your rent. You won't have. Go do your cooking my people will make sure that everything else is taken care of has to be uh, just a great relief. And the, the, the only stipulation you got to love Josh Harper and Hey, uh, that ain't so tough. Pecker no. Wood. That ain't so tough. <laughs> Pecker Wood Industries is my favorite company <laughs> and I only buy Pecker Wood Industries materials. Products. Yes. I Products. Yes, Why can't yes, I think yes. of the words today? Yes. <laughs> yes. Pecker Wood Industries products. Are my favorite. What do you think like that Peckerwood yeah. industry sells exactly? I don't want to know. I don't <laughs> want to know. That's that's a, that's a, that's another series of videos that we're not going to be talking about. <laughs> yeah, those no, we'll never those talk didn't about show. That those didn't show on Canadian television. I can assure you of that. No, no. So maybe Italian. Um, so I'll just tell you a little bit about this. I have very little information about this, but this was another one that was directed by a woman. She did two of these. I can't remember what the second one was now at the top of my head, but she. Directed oh Garnet Princess I think was the other one her name I, I I'm almost I'm gonna try to pronounce her name I think she's from Montreal I think she's French so it's like Danielle J Suisse perhaps her Danielle yeah. name Danielle. um which yeah. I guess is just Daniela it's got the it's got the little accent over the first e and I don't know how to pronounce that and I obviously can't pronounce her last name but anyway she was one of several women who would direct uh, Shades of Love which is wonderful. She actually wrote and produced and directed a Canadian TV movie I'd never heard of until I did some research on this called No Blame, which stars, I think, Helen Shaver about a wife who contracts HIV while she's pregnant. And I really want to see this movie. It looks, there's like a clip of it on YouTube and it looks amazing. So this woman makes really interesting television. I don't, did I mention that uh, Linda Smith's first IMDb credit is for an episode of The Hitchhiker? First season of The Hitchhiker was originally hosted by Nicholas Campbell, who starred in Champagne for Two. So we've got a little yeah. full circle here. Um, and that's really all the information I have about the Rose Cafe that that Ken probably didn't mention in the interview. Um, this is probably one of my favorite episodes, mostly for Parker Stevenson. Um, <laughs> I like it. It's really lovely. But I, oh, I know there's one scene I wanted to mention. Do you know that scene where, so she starts off working for somebody else, right? And you see her at the restaurant. Yes. And she's yeah. leaving and he's this really nice guy and they have a very close relationship, kind of fatherly love for her. And then he throws her a going away party. So all of the men who work at the restaurant, she's like the only woman at the restaurant. And they're having mm -hmm. this after hours going away party. And do you remember the way they all were staring at her? Like when she's opening the <laughs> gift? Like this uncomfortable, like none of them have lines. And I don't know that they speak English. Oh, and Because yeah. he barely spoke English, the actor playing the guy who runs the restaurant. And um, uh -huh. and he, they're all staring at her with like almost these blank Stepford wife kind of stares. I need smiling. to look again. Yeah, no, but I they can't don't, see that. 
it doesn't look like there's anything happening behind the window. You know what I mean? Wow. And they're all like that. Like they're like all of them. And um and it's weird. And she's just like, thanks guys. <laughs> and then she gets on the she they buy her this like copper pan or pot. Mm-hmm. And and she goes and she calls her boyfriend on the phone and she's like, it was a great party. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Because it looked really <laughs> weird to me. <laughs> a little off yeah i'm yeah. gonna have to go back and look again i don't know um yeah it's like my favorite uh, scene in the movie because they're just all smiling none of them have dialogue and uh, and there's close-ups <laughs> of like three of them for some reason and it's awesome because i they look like just nothing is they've ever had a thought in their head ever ever <laughs> and i just think it's because they probably didn't speak english and were just there as extras or Possibly. whatever but it's it's yeah. really it's a it's a cute scene so anyway um, so that's the Rose Cafe. So that is. I, I think. May I just say there are a bunch of montages here. There's always montages. There's always got to be montages. That sounds yeah. romance. It, it kind of does. And the thing about it that so Ken wrote some of the lyrics to some of the songs that are featured in um, some of the episodes, and some of them are just really famous songs. Like he did Roberto Flack and Peebo Bryson had a really big song that the title of it's eluding me. And that was in A Shades of Love. And that was a huge hit when it came out. And Juice Newton, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but he incorporates music really well into yeah. the stories. And um, and so the montages are always really great because the songs are always really great. And so you're just kind of mm-hmm. gliding through the song while you listen to it. And so he did a, a episode, which we talked about in the interview. Um, or it's not an episode, but he did a movie for Shades of Love called The Ballerina and the Blues with Rick Smith. And Rick Smith, as you know, is a singer, right? And he also was in Sooner mm-hmm. or Later, which is a TV movie we will be talking about soon. <laughs> and... He, I thought he wrote the song that they play in the movie, but Ken did the lyrics for it. And oh. the way that the song is incorporated throughout the film is so amazing because it's they do instrumental versions, they do like a bluesy version of it, they do the straight version. That's the version that I know because there's a mm-hmm. music video kind of attached to the song that you can find on YouTube, and it's the same song. It's kind of like Emmanuel and the Cannibals, and I almost hate to like. Oh sure, yeah. But, but that, you know, um, like the, the "Make Love on the Wing" is like used like twelve love different times. And that keeps yeah. coming up at different versions. They're like. Yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it's amazing. Every version is amazing. That's what he and he so he did that in Ballerina the Blues. So Mm -hmm. I really like the way he incorporated music. And music is the language of romance anyway. So like so like to have it in there is like a very important component. And I think he he did that really well in all of the Shades of Love. I don't think there's ever been a misstep with the music ever. And so um so yeah, he does a really good job. And these are really sweet, simple, wonderful, genuine, warm hearted. Uh, movies that I think are really good comfort blankets, especially if you really like this era, like 80s sort of romance movies. Like if you love, if you've watched a Daniel Steele adaptation and you enjoyed it, you will love The Shades of Love. So seek them out. Yeah, it has that thing with sort of when there is, it's it's never devastating conflict. It's never conflict that goes on too long. It just kind of comes in and it's like, it's like a little bump in the story and then it'll be the resolved or whatever will happen will happen. And it's it's never like, you know, through through these two um, that I've watched, and I'll, I'll watch more. You know, there's never um, uh, it's never like anxiety, which which no. to me is the thing with with the with the romance is you got to have some conflict. But I don't like too much anxiety in it, which you can sure. have from putting it too. So you just have just enough conflict to keep it moving. Although I would love to see one where there was no conflict at all. Where it was maybe just two people meeting, falling in love, and you just watch them for seventy-five minutes as they gradually fall more and more in love. But you, they always throw in some conflict. You you just you just have just enough 
to keep you pulling you along, but you don't you don't you don't have too much where you're sitting there going, oh now I'm getting nervous. Oh boy, I don't know about this. You know, I don't know. I don't care how many Kim Carn songs you play. <laughs> I you don't want you don't want that. And I think from these two at least, and I would imagine the other ones follow suit. Um, they do a good job of that. Yeah, I think so. And I'm gonna be really uh, what's the word I want to use? Pretentious here. <laughs> And um, I think it was, and maybe you would know the quote better, is Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? Is he the one that said yeah. it's, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey? Journey, yeah. I, I think that's Emerson. I'd have to, I I'd think have that's to look. Emerson. And I've been thinking a lot about that quote in terms of these kinds of movies. And mm-hmm. so, like, it's, I guess in a way you could put slashers in the same boat because yes, we, we're always talking about, like, well... It's just like this other film or they just do this. But it, that's not the point. It's not, it's not, I mean, I like the stories, obviously. It's not the plots that are drawing me in. It's the journey yeah. that the two characters have as they find themselves drawn to each other and, and ultimately end up together. Romance, that's just what, at its heart, that's just mm-hmm. what these kinds of films are, that's all they're trying to do. And they're lovely. And and they feel so good at the end. And they're also hopeful. Like, yes. um, they, you know, when you feel romance in your heart, that, that's because you feel hope in your heart, you know, and I know that's getting cheesy and, but that's all there. And if yeah. I could wear my heart on my sleeve for a little bit, I, I think that that's what makes these movies so special is because it, uh, it understands the heart of romance, um, better than so many other films do. Mm-hmm. And it goes, it goes right for it without any pretension at all. And that's what makes these so wonderful. Like with the, um, the ending of this one, uh, for example, is, is really, um, I think really, really lovely because you get like you do get the conflict with the, the construction and everything, but they deal with that just fine. But you, you get the moment where the she breaks up with the fiance and the fiance throws the kicker in that um, I've sold this to the Peckerwood Consortium. And <laughs> and then she's wandering out. She's like, what am I going to do? And she's with her friend and like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then immediately, clop, 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 clop. You hear the horse and the Parker Stevens is pulled and he sits there with a smile on his face like, hey, how are you this evening? I just flew in from i don't know the outside the milky way and uh how are you <laughs> and she's oh i'm real down really hmm I, let me show you this report and this info and it's like it's like it's it's perfectly done yeah when you know what the ending is going to be yeah you gotta you revel in the journey and um yeah. and that's that's the, these these are these are quite charming in the way they do this and they got you know hunky guys hanging around hmm. who's no hey. arguments yeah, that's right. I'm I'm here for the hunk- and they have lots of hunky guys. You've got Dak Rambo's in an episode called The Lilac Dream. You have um Joseph Bottoms in Make Mine Chartreuse, which is one of my favorites. Marshall Colt is in um Tangerine Taxi. Mark Singer is in Indigo Autumn, Simon McCorkendale's in Sincerely Violet, Ed Marinero in the Emerald Tear. Jean Lecourc in The Garnet Princess. And these are just the ones I'm remembering off the top of my head. They're perfectly cast in, in these roles. And, um, and they're just really fun films. And I'm so happy to have somebody to talk them about. So thank you, Dan. Yeah, of course. <laughs> do, is, is the, do they use the puce in any of the titles? They don't. But you know what's interesting is that he, he wanted all the different colors because he wanted the video boxes to have different colors. And so oh, when sure. you had them all together, there would just be this beautiful sort of arrangement of video boxes. And um, he did two – so they did them in like two chunks. So they did the first – there's 16 of them. So they did eight together and then they did another eight. And he wanted to do a third series, but I think something happened with Carl Lorimar's company and it just never came to be. And um, But they would have had to come up with some interesting colors because 16 colors already yeah. pushing it. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's going to be like the brown bung- bungalow. And you're like, really? <laughs> they're, 
<laughs> Look at this thing. Yeah, start to get to some real, real rough colors <laughs> after a while. That third series took a turn. You could tell by the colors. Yeah, they became like torture porn or something. You know, like they had to like incorporate like horror elements or something. Just the, the, the black menagerie. pawn. I, I yeah. Uh, Obsidian Nights. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's not bad. Yeah, hmm. yeah. We should we should actually come up with titles. We'll do that. Then. We'll do that. We'll have. We'll a, do that for another can... Shades of Love episode. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll reconfigure with the third third season titles. Eight of yeah. them. Eight good ones. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure Ken will appreciate that. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, thanks so much for listening, guys. Um, this was another yeah. fun kind of diversion for us, and hopefully, we'll have more of these coming up. So, just stay tuned, and thanks so much. Bye. Bye bye. Might have found your fortune. The night held it till it burns so clear and bright. Might have seen the future, might have read your mind. The dream brought you together, but love. Say